0: It doesn't matter if you're in the hobby for one year or 30 years, just always always looking for that next little edge to to help you and your animals be more successful.
1: Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. everyone welcome to number 69 of from the ground up Um, a little things or a couple things to get out of the way before we get started Um, port city pythons that is where you can find t-shirts that will support our podcast as well as you will see in our YouTube videos as well as the links on this podcast if you're listening to it on iTunes Those go to Amazon, you shop as you normally would, and that gives us a little kickback and puts money into hosting this podcast as well. And then also, I want to let you guys know that I was on Morelia Python Radio last week or last Tuesday, rather. So if you guys could go support them and listen to them, if you don't already uh, do that, hopefully I don't sound like too much of an idiot, but I'm sure I do. Um, but it's hard when you're recording a podcast because I feel like things I may believe now or think now in like a year, I'll probably think the opposite or think something different or learn something new and realize I was an idiot. So, uh, don't take my word for things. And on that note today, we have, um, John Michaels from black pearl reptiles. Um, he works with a bunch of dry marcon. And, um, so John, can you give us a little overview of what you work with? and how long you been keeping snakes
0: sure well you know the keeping part has been forever right I mean uh like a lot of us you know I've got photos when I'm a toddler you know with uh, big old snakes in my hands and whatever so it's been a lifelong thing and uh you know it's uh geez I guess it's been about 15 years ago that I thought you'd be pretty cool to kind of breed a few things you know and then I thought well you know Hey, uh, I've got these baby snakes laying around. Uh, it'd be cool to kind of sell a couple of them and pay for the feeders, and and so it was kind of a self-sustaining hobby. And then, uh, but you know, once I had more money the the than I needed to pay for the feeders, then it was all right. Well, I'm not going to pocket this money. Let's go ahead and reinvest it, and um, and I just sort of built things from there. And um, so now it's just a full-scale Jermarkon uh, operation. So. It's working with the animals I love, and uh, it's um, you know, and it's uh, it's you know, gone a little bit past the self-sustaining hobby, which has been nice. Um, but it's uh, it's a labor of love. But it's um, you know, there are absolutely days that I uh, you know am tired of the cage cleaning and all that sort of thing. But uh, you know, like all of us, it's uh, I do it because I love working with the animals.
1: So, I know that dry marcon aren't usually considered exactly a beginner reptile, so uh what other snakes have you kept and how did you realize that you loved dry marcon?
0: Well, you know, to, to give kind of the full history, you know, it's I'm a uh, I like field herping as well and I live in Southern California, so um it kind of started with, you know, I when I was a kid, I'd go out and I'd catch a bunch of gopher snakes and things and I I'd, I'd throw them all in a, you know, one big cage and the males would fight and breed the females and, and the whole thing. And and I'd get eggs and I'd hatch the eggs and I'd release the babies uh, and the adults back where I caught them. And every year I'd sort of do the process over again. And, uh, you know, and then when I started kind of wanting to intentionally breed captive bred snakes, it was, it was started off with Honda and milk snakes. I did that and the Honda and milk morphs. Um, You know, I played around with that for a while and um, I was always sort of fascinated with the jar mark on and, when I was first getting started, you know, Eastern Indigos were, were high on my list, but kind of out of my budget. And so I started off with a pair of, uh, a Blacktail tail And, um, you know, the, I, I was fortunate enough to find them, uh, from a local guy, um, that were, they were adults and proven breeders. And so I was able to get those breeding right away in the first year. And that was a steep learning curve on getting all the, all the babies and getting the babies feeding and all of that. But, uh, you know, uh, like you said a few minutes ago, about just sounding like an idiot one year and the next year, you know, uh, because it's you know we learn and so uh, every year, you know, I learn new things and I'm I feel like uh, you know way more uh, way more proficient than I was the year before and things like that and I still have a long ways to go that's for sure but so it started off with blacktail crebos and you know from there I got into the yellowtails and I was able to get my eastern indigos and I thought well. If that's uh, if that's what I'm gonna do, I may as well just work with all the Jarmarcon species. So um yellowtail crebos, black tail crebos, unicolor crebos, you know, the Texas indigos, the Mexican red tail indigos and the eastern indigos. So I built um, you know, breeding groups of all of those. And uh with all of them deliberately kind of trying to amass uh animals and bloodlines that were um that were gonna make for good breeders and nice looking animals and uh uh were as genetically diverse as I could, and so you know uh, there's a large breeding group of each of those, kind of six major types of jar so then from there, you know, uh, it's you know uh, you, you got to have little side projects to keep things to keep things a little diverse. so you know, I got into some of the Mexican tiger rat snakes and some of the barons racers, uh, uh, particularly the blue ones, which are a lot of fun. Um, I have a uh, a business partner who is a uh, He's the uh, head keeper of reptiles at the LA Zoo, and he brings a lot of expertise with all those snakes, uh, as well as a passion for tortoises. So he and I also work with uh, some of the rare tortoises. We've got radiated tortoises and uh, star tortoises. And uh, and uh, the most exciting thing we have going on now is that we have a, an adult herd of uh, Galapagos tortoises, and we've gotten our first eggs uh, just in the past month, so we're really excited about that. So. It it gives us a lot to do and a lot to talk about, right? Yeah,
1: I was wondering, um, I saw you sharing a bunch of tortoise stuff, and Mm -hmm. from my knowledge, um, I thought there was only one person who had bred Galapagos in captivity in the U.S. previously. Is that true, and how did you guys go about it?
0: Well, listen, I, I, I will admit from the beginning that the tortoise thing, I am not nearly as proficient. So I will tell you what I know and, uh, and, and go through uh, as much as I can, but I would defer to my partner who's not here uh, on on all those points. But that being said, um, my knowledge is there's a, there are a group of guys in Florida that have been successfully breeding them for a few years. Um, And um, they've been done a good, they've been doing a good job. And we've been talking with them a lot about uh, husbandry and sharing ideas back and forth. And then there's also been uh, uh, Mr. Fife in Arizona, um, who's also bred them uh, and has been working with uh, exotic exotic pets in, um, in Las Vegas uh, with all that kind of stuff. Uh, but outside of those, whether there's more beyond that, I don't really know. Those are the only ones that I know about. Um, to my knowledge, we're the only private keepers in California that have ever bred them. Um, and, and I say bred them in that you know. Right now we have eggs. We are we are uh, you know uh, assuming catastrophe doesn't happen, and that we'll get healthy hatchlings here in a couple of months. Um, but I understand that um, I believe the last I heard that there was a zoo. I think it was the San Diego Zoo that produced them decades ago. Um, but um, to my knowledge, and again this could be incorrect, uh, I think we're the only people in California to have successfully bred them. So. and And again success we're just still in the process on that but
1: right uh, yeah how long is incubation typically do you know offhand
0: uh my understanding is it's about 90 days 90 days 100 days something like that um again i could be wrong on that i'm just going off my memory of what my partner told me when i was when we had a very excited conversation about uh eggs being uh, put into the incubator so uh we're uh we're about halfway through that period so hopefully in a month or two we'll get some good news
1: I've heard, um, of things like heat cycling and stuff with eggs and tortoises, which sounds like an absolute nightmare. Right. Um, do you have to do that with these?
0: My understanding is that we are not doing that with these, but again, uh, you know, I don't really know. He's, he's the tortoise wizard. I, I let him right. kind of do his thing, but, um, but I, I know that he's done that with, uh, with other species of tortoise. We also do the, uh, the giant, uh, South African, uh, um, uh, South African, uh, the giant leopard tortoises. And okay. um, and I know he's done things like that. I, again, I don't really fully understand that process. So I'll, I'll claim that, um, ignorance on that.
1: Yeah, sorry. I got distracted by the whole tortoise thing. I don't know anything but, about tortoises. So that's why I'm asking questions. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll tell you what. It's, it's, I, and I didn't either, to be honest with you. And um, it it became very real for me. Um, a couple of years ago, his ranch uh, needed to be evacuated with a brush fire that was nearby. And so... Um, I have a enclosed backyard, but not geared for tortoises. But I, I took all of his tortoises um, while we were evacuating, and that was, you know, it was uh, it was all of our Galapagoses. There was uh, all of our leopard tortoises and all of that, and I just we just threw them in my backyard. And um, my family and I had the good fortune to be able to kind of take care of our Galapagos tortoises for uh, a few months while we got things together. And I have to tell you. Um, being a snake guy, not a tortoise guy, I completely did not understand these animals. And, um, you know, I, I, I was familiar with them. Um, you know, I, I'd always visit him when I go to his house, but you don't really get it until you're with them every day. The level of sociability and temperament and personability of Galapagos tortoises is something that I, 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 I couldn't possibly fathom until I was with them every day. And... You know, it got to a point where my wife, who's not necessarily an animal person, certainly not a reptile person, would wake up early before work to go out and just say hi to the tortoises. And, you know, they'll stick their necks out and they want to be scratched. And, and they will, there are some, a couple of ours will literally come when you call their name. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a degree of intelligence in there that you just can't fathom. And the inner workings of the relationship of the tortoises with each other and with us, is something that you just don't get and, until you're with them every day. And I'll tell you, when we brought them back to my partner's ranch, once we cleared everything up, my wife and my kids were sobbing. I mean, it was, it was like family pets, you know, like a, like, like a dog. Um, the, it, it was just really, really cool uh, experience to be able to work with them every day um, like that. So, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty neat. They're pretty neat. Our Galapagoses are a lot of fun.
1: That's amazing. So, before everyone gets too excited, um, how do you manage to get things like space or the proper um, temperature down there in Southern California? Are there things you need to watch out for in the winter?
0: Now are we talking about tortoises or are we talking about <laughs> and, uh,
1: uh Just tortoises. This will be the last one that we'll, yeah, we'll, no we'll track back.
0: Uh, well, it's, it's, it's my partner deliberately. Uh, as a few years ago, he and his wife and family um, purchased a ranch in order to be able to have the space to do what we wanted to do. And, you know, it, we quickly then grew from just having a couple of Galapagosas to a to whole herd of them and uh, along with the other species. So, um, you know, we bought a tractor, we plowed out the land, we made the pens, we did the whole thing. And so the galops have a barn um, that's fully insulated with uh, heating inside of it. So in the winter, they go inside every, most nights when it's cool out, they'll go inside, um, you know, and uh, even in the winter in Southern California during the daytime, they'll still come out and roam around the pen. And uh, you know where it gets interesting is when you have a couple stubborn ones that want to stay outside overnight, and it's really too cold for them. And I tell you, it's it's not easy to move a 400 pound animal in the middle of the night when uh, you're trying to get them to go back inside.
1: Oh, I'm sure. So let's go back. So if people missed okay. the first couple minutes, I know some people in the chat came in a little bit late. Um, your kribos, you said you yeah. got a pair of, I believe you said blacktails. Um, were those coming in as imports or were they captive born and bred?
0: No. Well, this was, uh, I got them as adults from a gentleman, local gentleman who got them as adults. uh, And I've since gone back and and tracked back uh, what I could of the lineage of those two animals. And I I believe they were originally produced many years ago uh, by one of the Florida importers. And so whether they're, they were produced from wild-caught animals. I don't know, really, the history of them. Um, but I did a fair amount of homework on it because um, it was those two snakes whose lineage eventually produced uh, the exanthic black-tailed cribo. Um So trying to figure out you know, where those two adults came from and how that all worked was, uh, uh, was something I tried to do because those animals changed hands a few times um, before they ended up in, uh, in, in my care. So, um, uh, I, my, an- those, those animals were captive bred, but you know, how far back there from wild caught, I don't really know.
1: And did you try to, I mean, you were trying to backtrack to see if they were possible hets or did you have any hope of that or have you bred that out?
0: Well, it has been bred out. So, um, the way it ended up working was, um, that I got the, I got the original pair, um, from a gentleman named Jim Pascal. And, uh, and Jim had produced them a year or two prior to me uh, buying them from him. And so he had some offspring from them. And several years after I'd been breeding them and selling animals uh, all around uh, the country and the world really, um, Jim asked if he could uh, uh, breed one of his females back to the father just kind of on a breeding loan. He didn't have a male to go with it at the time. And, uh, and so we did that, and that's where the Exanthic popped out. And it was, uh, there, were, there were two Exanthics uh, in that clutch. And um, so I kept one, and Jim kept one, and he's, uh, he has since uh, bred his, uh, raised his, uh, exanth- his Exanthic up and has bred it, and um, I've bred some of mine. And was, so we've proven that it is, in fact, a recessive trait um, so it's kind of come out of that, out of that lineage of that original pair that I got from Jim, gosh, th- this was about 2007 or eight, something like that, um, that I originally had these animals as adults. So they're pretty elderly now. In fact, this year they, that original pair, uh, you know, only produced infertile eggs. So, um, they might be ending the, ending their time as breeders.
1: Right. So i'm not familiar with how long it takes these guys to mature so um those babies you raised up or those exanthics, since 2006 how long did it take you to get visual exanthics and then breed Xantha to exanthic stuff like that
0: well the first exanthics were were i got the original pair back in 2006 7 whatever it was but the the xanthics were not produced until i'm so bad with dates i, I believe it was 2014 um, and oddly enough, um, there's a, there's a group in Northern California called GBU enterprises, and they produce Xanthics and put it all over their social media. They got a clutch, uh, from a pair of snakes that they hadn't bred in a long time. And there were three exantics that came out and I was actually in line to acquire one of them. Um, and we had a deal kind of all set up and the night before we were going to meet up for me to look at the animals. I produced them in my own garage. Um, so needless to say, I didn't kind of go through that deal, although I've since acquired some of those animals, but, um, but the, uh, it, it was kind of interesting the way it worked, but that was 2014, I believe I might be off a year. I, 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 again, I'm bad with numbers, but or dates, but, um, um, so we've since raised those up. And then of course, we had the animals that produced them in the first place. So we knew we had 100% pets and, um, and then we've got the exantics that we've raised up as well. Generally speaking, with um, you're looking at three to four, possibly five years to reach sexual maturity, depending, of course, on the um, on the feeding regimen and, and and all that. So, um, you know, some species are breeding at one and a half, two years. These guys will take more like three or four.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering, just because we keep smaller colubrids, but I didn't know if there was a large difference between, um, you know, something larger like a Cribo. Can you explain a little bit on their size and how often you feed them?
0: Uh, Well, in general, the Dramarcon species is one of the larger colubrids you have, right? Um, And so, you know, they can approach lengths of eight to nine feet, but generally more like seven is a little bit more of an average and um they're what's really neat about them is that they're not constrictors and they're not venomous they're not rear fanged they're just really strong and intense and so one of the things i like about them they're they're kind of like a cobra without the venom in that um they don't constrict they just sort of rely on jaw strength and power to subdue their prey and they'll eat damn near anything they can fit into their mouth so you're talking uh, you know, in captivity, you're, you know, you're feeding them fish, you're feeding them uh, chicks, quail, um, obviously rodents, uh, but, the, you know, in the wild, they'll eat snakes, and in fact, that's one of the more preferred prey items in the wild. Uh, I think I just read a study on Eastern Indigo saying that they tend to um, gravitate more towards snakes in the wild, but they'll eat anything, whether it's baby turtles, baby alligators, it doesn't matter, or whatever fit, fits in their mouth, they'll eat it, and they don't constrict, so... Um, they're prey generalists. They'll eat anything they can uh, without constriction, and uh, so it's really kind of fun to watch. Um, I don't feed my animals anything live, um, but you know they've got a really strong feeding response, um, and they'll go right after right after whatever you have with with intensity. Um, but as far as feeding regimen goes, you asked about that. Um, generally speaking, they have a higher metabolism than most snakes. And so, um, which, which is, uh, which is fun, but it kind of works against you in a few ways, of course. Uh, but they'll, they, they'll eat as often as you want to feed them. Um, but I'll generally feed my animals every four or five days, something like that. Um, and then, you know, in the cooler parts of the winter, I'll scale it back to more like every seven or eight days, but they eat pretty often, which means they poop pretty often. Um, I mean, they'll cycle through a meal in two days, you know, and, uh, And, um, you know, the Drum on genus has a reputation for being pretty foul in that department. And that's something we can get into as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something I heard. And just to explain the fact that a random person showed up in the middle, um,
0: we usually do the
1: podcast with me. And this is Melissa.
2: Hi, Melissa. Sorry, I
1: was at work. She was at work, and she does a lot of the dealing with the people in the chat, and then she'll also have questions and stuff. So I just wanted to explain that there's not just a random yeah. extra person.
2: Can you catch me up quickly?
1: Yeah, so we are just talking. We actually just kind of got into it. We're talking about crebos. Um, so <laughs> I was going to ask you, um, you were talking about all the different things that you feed um kribos do you think that that is a big deal for someone keeping dry mark on to always um you know switch up what kind of things you're feeding it
0: um you know as far as the health of the animal i don't know Uh, there's there are a lot of people that successfully keep indigos and kribos on just a strictly rodent diet so i don't want to completely dismiss that as something that you cannot do um, but that being said, I am a, I am a believer and in, in my experience. I have noticed that my animals are healthier, happier, and more fertile, um, when they're on a varied diet. So, uh, a typical meal for me, uh, and my animals will be a rat and a chick. Um, we all, we also make, um, our own supplements that we use, uh, and, uh, I pack the powder and veggie capsules and I put them down the, the throat of the chick and they'll, they'll eat it that way. Um, and then, you know, I'll supplement here and there with fish. I'll supplement with frog legs. I'll buy, uh, you know, big frog legs from a uh, Asian market down the street. Um, fish, uh, again, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an avid field herper as well. So if I come across a snake that's recently been run over on the road, I'll collect that. Um, I freeze it to ensure that any kind of parasites are killed off freeze it for a month. And they, they'll love that. Interesting side note on that is that, uh, the indigos will actually defecate out the rattles of rattlesnakes. They don't digest them, which is what? kind of interesting. So you're going through their That's stool and cleaning their cages, indigos? and you get fully intact rattles inside of their inside of their poop.
1: Weird, because you would think they're digesting the bone, but for whatever reason, What's I mean, it? I thought the rattle was made out of the same thing. Well, That's I guess it's keratin, and it would be easier to break down. Bone.
0: Right. You would think, and I, I, can, I don't have a, a, a scientific explanation for why that happens. It's At this point, it's, it's just a interesting side note. That's my And blowing. I wonder <laughs>
2: if it's across like the board. Like, Is there any snake that can break
1: down? I don't know. Try adults. this king snake later. I know. Um, but, that's
2: what I go to, our king snake that eats anything. Like. I well, I,
0: yeah. I do also work with Muserana, uh, which is a type of, not to derail a conversation, but that's another uh, snake-eating uh, snake. And, uh, and, and they, they, they digest the rattles, no problem. Oh. So hmm. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say.
1: That's interesting. So that little like capsule of vitamins or whatever you're putting in there, is there anything that you're going for in particular, like a certain vitamin that you want more of or a mineral or anything like that?
0: Uh, you know, again, this is one that I have to kind of claim a little bit of ignorance on because my brother kind of packs most of it. Um. We start with a, a product that I believe is made by Missouri. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I believe it's a, it's a, it's a powder that they'll use. Uh, I believe it's for amphibians, if I'm not mistaken and we'll mix in some calcium, but it's got, uh, uh, a lot of different animal parts, uh, you know, fish, frog, and so forth. They'll kind of ground up. Uh, I, I don't think it's too different from reptilinks or things like that, but, um, we'll pack it in there as a powder and i use veggie capsules and i got a little pill packer and whatever it's kind of odd the way i do it but uh but uh but it, it does seem to along with other things increase the fertility of the animals and kind of the way the animals look they seem to be happier when they're on a more of a varied diet so again back to my comment earlier i don't want to i don't want to completely dismiss a rodent only diet a lot of people do it with success but um um, you know, we, we generally believe that the more varied the diet, the better, particularly when you're dealing with a prey generalist like an indigo snake.
1: Absolutely, is your mic all right? <laughs> no, I
2: don't know, it's the thing keeps coming out, and that's why it keeps oh, okay, he's so on much. switching
1: back and forth. Yeah, it's just let's uh, look at what happens when you show up. I know. So, um, just um, size and cage size as far as these guys,
0: well, so. They'll get to be, you know, like I said, you know, seven, eight feet long. And so, uh, a lot of people like to provide uh, larger cage sizes. Um, they are sexually dimorphic, so males will get larger than females. And I know with a lot of species, it's the opposite. Um, the difference is not enormous, um, but generally speaking, the males will get a half foot to a foot longer than females, and it will generally be more girthy. Um, and uh but with that being said as far as cage size goes you know your your bare minimum for a smaller adult is you're looking at you know four by two cage something along those lines Um, but then six by two cages you know for uh for a larger adult uh can be used as well some people even go larger than that um i did play around with kind of using uh large cages for a while and Like a lot of reptiles, they do end up spending a lot of their time just sort of sitting in their hide box and don't feel like they're utilizing all that space. But um, like anything else also, you don't want them to get obese. And so being able to move around, uh, you know, helps too. And, um, you know, feeding regimen obviously helps with that. If you let them eat as often as they would, um, you know, they're not too different than me that they'll uh, quickly balloon up in size. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, there
1: was a study that i believe is like the orient society uh-huh. um, was a part of but i think it's indigos travel um, within like a mile radius or something like that so i think right. they are like you know very active and compared to don't see it. other snakes we probably don't see it because we feed them right. and <laughs> like they don't have to look for food but
0: well you know they're though you know it, and i think part of that is kind of connected with the with the being such a prey generalist that they actively forage for food you know they're, they're not sitting in ambush, um, and, and while they will you know, go down burrows and eat whatever is down a burrow, they'll, they chase stuff down, you know, and, they, and you know, it's kind of similar to what a racer might do. You know. um, they actively travel looking for food, looking for mates. Um, they also drink more water than any other type of snake that I've ever seen, uh, and I don't know how much that plays into how much they travel in the wild. Uh, but yeah, they, they, I have read that, uh, like you have, that they, they tend to have pretty large home ranges, um, which makes it kind of difficult for their long-term success in the wild with the kind of habitat fragmentation that they're facing in Florida and Georgia and things like that. So, uh, it makes it difficult to maintain healthy populations when, you know, you've got roads and things and, and housing developments all, uh, fragmenting their, their habitat. You know, when you have a, um, reptiles that have a very small range it's not quite as big of a deal but when they travel a lot it's a problem
1: absolutely and now backtracking a little bit um talking about how they are so general in what they eat obviously they eat other snakes so are you worried when you are pairing that they may eat each other
0: you know uh, it, it it comes up it comes up um there are some of my snakes are more prone you know some of my males are more prone to be a problem than others um, but it has happened. Um, so it is something that I, that I try to watch. Um, the other issue with that is like a lot of snakes, the males will often bite the females as part of their mating, uh, courtship. And with the jaw strength and the teeth of these snakes that can cause a lot of damage to the females as well. So, uh, that's kind of something I have to be really on top of. Um, and, you know, we've, uh, We've had to do some some vet work, some emergency care on some of our females uh, when they get in with an aggressive male. It's gen- I will say it's generally not out of a cannibalistic issue. It does happen, but it's more often that the males will bite the females, will often lacerate them pretty badly. Uh, wow. so, so it's
1: significant enough to get something like stitches or you oh yeah, just...
0: oh yeah. No, there there. It's 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 difficult to understand because you you know you've worked with king snakes and other snakes that lead other snakes and. Uh, but the jaw strength and the teeth of indigo snakes is—it's hard to describe, but it's—it's it, it's another level. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you get—if you get an indigo snake biting and clamping down on you uh, when you're a female snake and you're, you get bitten on the neck, it can—it can cut them wide open. So, so um, wonder, I wonder.
2: Sorry, sorry. Right. You go. Yeah, I I'm wonder ready. in the wild, are there less? I wonder if there's less females out there because of this happening or is their skin are they just have they adapted over time to like heal from that with no problem you know know, but
0: i don't don't know Uh, um i haven't i haven't read anything about breeding behavior in the wild i don't know if they bite as much as they do in captivity or not i can't really speak to that so um you know i i don't know how much of an issue that would really be Um, You know, I, I think if they're not in a captive setting and they're more spread out, um, my hope would be that they're not going to bite as much as they do in <laughs> captivity, out yeah, of safety for the animals. But uh, I would, uh, I would sort of assume that's the case that they don't bite as much. But I, uh, I don't have any, I haven't read anything, uh, any scientific publications that would back that up.
1: I think also in captivity, <laughs> you know, we try to go the extra mile to ensure our snake's health in comparison to. I'm sure you go out and you see snakes with nipped off tails with chunks out their back chunks out of everywhere. Right. And they're still going. They're it's just, hard. I bet like a certain amount of them probably die of some type of infection or something like that. Right. But I mean, that's just nature, I guess. Right.
0: Well, and I would, I would guess too, that, you know, when you're in a captive setting and you're trying to breed the snakes, you're trying to pair them up that you're, there's a certain amount of guesswork too. you know, on, on, if the males are ready and the females are ready and if the timing is right. And I would venture to say that some of that biting is due to females not being as ready as the male is they're trying uh, to, and they're, they're trying to them. you know, hold her down kind of a thing. Uh, uh, again, this that's just speculation on my part, but I would imagine in the wild that, you know, the snakes know when they're ready to breed and when the both the male and the female are ready, they're going to, they're going to do what they need to do. Um, but uh, that being said, you know, pairing pairing your snakes, the draw mark on, you know, you, you do have to be vigilant.
1: Yeah, that, that makes total sense because we see even with when we pair corns, it's like the beginning of the season. I mean, we're locking them together in a small little air confined area where the female can get right. away. And it's essentially a rape. And then as yeah. the season goes on, it's it gets more, more and more consensual. A little
2: bit more. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, right. I mean, yeah. It like, takes so much longer. I don't know.
1: I think we just may not be totally attuned.
0: Uh, I don't know if the males necessarily care.
1: (laughs) So talking about that and breeding, um, what is the uh, brumation like and what's the difference between, say, you know, yellowtails, the Mexicans, the Easterns, all that stuff?
0: Uh, So I really cycle them all the same. Um, the only ones that I that I cycle differently are the Eastern Indigos. I tend to keep those colder in the winter, and um, and I've noticed that that does increase fertility. It also decreases uh, the potential for birth defects. Um, so, uh, but but generally speaking, I kind of let the natural Southern California cycles kind of do the trick. I, I don't. I I have the luxury to be able to. Uh, just let the nights get a little cooler in the winter than they do in the summer. I don't do that, uh, you know, uh, manually. Um, So my my animals will just sort of cycle. So I keep them in the garage, the garage temperature controlled and insulated. Uh, However, you know, the night times in the winter time will be, you know, 10 to 15 degrees colder than they are in the summertime. And that kind of takes care of my cycling. Uh, The Easterns, I do intentionally get them colder. What's interesting about the um uh, genus, at least in my experience, has been that they are winter breeders rather than spring breeders, and so they will breed when it is cold uh, or when they're colder. I tend to pair them together in uh, anywhere between October and uh, in December, and I'll have I've had Eastern Indigos locking up f- at fifty-five degrees, um, you know, and they'll be outside and locked up for, you know, 24 hours at a time kind of a thing um and uh that's what tends to pr- tends to produce the most fertile clutches with the easterns but um that's that's a little bit about the brumation
1: wow so that goes pretty much against logic um right. so is the female holding on to the sperm during brumation or is she actually growing follicles and stuff in that cool temperature without food or are you feeding them? Uh, that's that's that? why
0: it's, I I do feed them uh, less frequently and smaller meal sizes throughout the winter. Um, some of them go off feed altogether. Um, the males will often go off feed altogether, which is not horribly uncommon um, with a lot of snakes. Uh, and then the females will start going off feed once they're once they're starting to produce their eggs and they're getting more gravid. But um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, when I when I'm pairing them together, the females are still, you know, uh, a thin, you know, appropriate weight, and they really don't start beefing up until February, uh, and starting to look like they're swollen. So as far as the production of follicles and storing sperm, I don't know. I haven't, you know, taken an ultrasound to look for uh, the follicles or things, but um, that tends to be the way it kind of works with the way I breathe things. Is you know, pair them up in the late fall early winter and they'll the females will start swelling in in february or so and start looking gravid uh and then generally speaking end of march early april is when they start laying their clutches
1: wow so i had no idea how to breed these things before (laughs) all right so now we got to backtrack again are you beefing them up in the summertime so i mean during our regular colubrids you know we start beefing up during spring are you doing it during the summertime
0: um, yeah, I mean, in, in the it, it, again, it kind of depends on the individual. Some of them, some of the uh, the females don't want to eat at all um, when before they lay their eggs. After they lay their eggs, they're ravenous, and uh, that's when I'm you know small but frequent meals tend to be uh, the way I work uh, with the females and getting them to recover their body weight. Um, the males will uh, can't, will and can get obese if you overfeed them too much in the winter time. I tend to. I probably tend to feed less than, than other keepers do, um, you know, uh, animals that are lean and trim and muscular tend to be, uh, happier and healthier and better breeders. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, I don't really power feed them at all. The females will get a little bit more in the, uh, you know, after, after laying their eggs.
1: Okay. And now talking about laying eggs, um, mm-hmm. what's the average clutch size and how does it vary through the species?
0: Good. So that, that depends a lot. The indigos tend to have larger eggs, but smaller clutches. Uh, whereas the crebos will tend to have smaller eggs, but larger clutches. So you can have yellowtail black blacktail crebos that'll lay 15 to 20 eggs on the upper end. Sometimes it's more like, you know, 12, you know, somewhere in that area. Uh, but they tend to, they, they, they can pump them out. Uh, whereas the indigos, eastern indigos, um, and, uh, you know, Texans and the Mexicans, they tend to be more like somewhere from between six and 12, something along those lines. It can be more obviously, I you know with individuals here and there, um, but, um, bigger eggs, larger hatchlings, um, but smaller clutches on the indigos. Cribos, they're, the babies are small. They're, they're, they're a little bit thinner and wiry and not quite as robust when they're first born. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a function of having a lot of eggs that are smaller in a clutch
1: and how difficult is it then to get these guys started and what yeah. is your process?
0: Well, that's, that's, that's kind of the question, right? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not very easy, um, to be honest with you. And that's part of why, uh, breeding, um, Indigo's and crebos is, is not for everybody. It, it, it is a process, uh, because they're such prey generalists in the wild you often don't really know what they want when they're first born. And so um, some species are easier to get started than others on average. Uh, But again, obviously it varies uh, by individual. Um, Texas indigos tend to be the easiest. They'll tend to go to rodents right off the bat without a whole lot of struggle. Um, uh, But Easterns and some of the Cribos, you know, sometimes you get clutches that go straight to rodents and other times they're a real pain. And so uh, scenting and uh, other techniques are, you know, things that we use. Uh, but a technique that might work on one snake might not work on the next. And so you sort of have to have a, uh, a wide array of different strategies to be able to, to get them all feeding. Um, you know, and you go back earlier in our conversation about my first clutch of blacktail cribo eggs. That was, that was the learning curve. That, that was the stressful part was getting all the babies feeding because sometimes the baby wants fish sometimes it wants frog sometimes it wants lizard sometimes it wants bird and um and and it can be a process um but generally speaking some scenting items will work better than others uh fish is usually our go-to um and so uh we'll take a pinky and scent it with uh fish scent and that will often work um they 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 uh they'll hunt off of scent, but they also use their vision more than other snakes too. So um, I'll use live pinkies or fuzzies uh, often, uh, scenting them with fish, feeding them actually fish works uh, works well. That usually solves the problem uh, with fish, but sometimes I need to resort to other uh, to other uh, scents, but it can take a while, it can take a while.
2: So do you just keep like, the biggest variety of food in your freezer? I mean, I'm just thinking like fr- you gotta have is a very bird, You gotta have frog, you gotta have uh-huh. like, I just can imagine the difference. I have
0: I have all of that in, in my in my freezer. I have snakes, I have lizards, I have frogs, uh, I have chicks, I have quail. Um you just have a dead zoo in there. <laughs> uh, I have I have fish, uh, yep. Yeah, so all of that. Um you know, so it, uh, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes a lot of record keeping. You know, when you have 200 baby Dermark on, uh, you have to keep track of where everyone's feeding status is. So feeding cards for everything, and, uh, and that can be time consuming and take a lot of work. So uh, the process itself can, can take a few months to get them, you know, fully established. Generally speaking, though, the genus as a whole, they're very intense feeders and they're very aggressive feeders. And so once you kind of get that, um, once you kind of get that feeding response going, it's generally not a problem, and they'll eat anything you throw in front of them, for the most part. So it's just it's just developing that in the hatchling, and once you get that going, um, then you have it. But I, you know, what I tend to look for is not quite as much how many meals has it eaten and how many you know pinkies has it eaten, but more it's it's an attitude, and it's a it's a behavior. And you'll, you'll see it with adults and with sub-adults that they own their area. And when you open their cage or you, you go into their enclosure and they're thinking, I'm going to get fed, and it's not just that they'll flash out and bite at anything, but they'll immediately pick their head up and they'll start searching and they'll start looking and they, there's a different breathing pattern. They sort of huff um, and just kind of fuck. Uh, like that when they're when they're looking around their cage looking for food and but once they sort of develop that sort of intensity then i know they're ready to go to a new home and they're they're not going to be a problem feeding for you know my buyers or whatever it's going to be so you know sometimes they'll sort of timidly eat you know seven or eight meals and whatever but it's when they start really going berserk um that uh that i know that they're they're not going to be a problem for people
2: um, Brandon Sander in the chat asked, what kind of fish do you use for scenting?
0: Uh, good question. So it does it does make a difference. Um, trout works really well. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll use trout. I've ha- I have a, a friend of mine who's uh, an avid fisherman, and he just sort of saves his trout, and it works well. And, and those you can cut them up into fillets. Um, however, out of convenience sake, what works well that we use a lot of are called sides which you can buy frozen at Petco or PetSmart or I don't know what uh, pet things you have. Uh, and they're generally used as feeder fish for, for other fish, for tropical fish. And I buy them frozen in blocks. And they're basically like a like a large guppy, you know, two, three okay. inches long. And that works well, too, because I'll scent with that. And if they don't eat the scented pinky, then they'll often just eat the fish itself. And for a hatchling snake, that's just, that's the perfect size. so. Um, that works well too, but you know, catfish fillets, um, tilapia fillets, any of those will be things that they could potentially go after. Um, but we use silver sides a lot. A lot of that's out of convenience and it is effective. Yeah. Um,
1: I was wondering because I know. For me in particular, like, I want that to be one of the last steps is going to the actual prey item that I'm scenting with, because I'm afraid that it's going to get stuck on that. Um, are you afraid that you're going to have a baby get stuck on fish or is it establishing that food response and then you're good?
0: It's establishing the food response and then you're good. Uh, it's, it is, it does happen obviously, but it is rare to have a larger Indigo or Cribo only want a certain prey item. Um. You know, generally speaking, once you get that food response going and you get that sort of territorial dominating attitude that they have towards their their environment, they'll eat anything you put in front of them uh, for the most part. So it's really just kind of developing that. I don't, I've never had one that only wanted fish and never wanted, uh, you know, rodents. Once you get the feeding response going, sometimes it will take a few months of just eating fish, uh, you know, and just – I had a snake once that was – and this was an anomaly, but it was several months of it would just turn its nose up to any kind of pinky. But if I just put a spot of fish scent on the pinky's nose, it would slam it. Um, but uh, but but that's that's not really the norm. Once they really kind of get that aggressive feeding response, um, they'll eat anything. It's it's I don't worry about them getting stuck on a certain prey item.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So from like a this is a particular question. So. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. ramp up your purchases of that variety of stuff right when you know babies are about to hatch, or do you kind of like have the same amount of the frog, the fish, all year round? Uh,
0: no, I, I definitely need to prepare for hatchling season. You know, it's uh, my busy time of year is August through uh, through October uh, because that's not only when I'm handling getting all the babies feeding, but that's also when I'm you know, managing customers and, and getting, um, you know, the snakes sold of the ones that I'm not going to keep for myself. And so, um, that's the busy time of year and I, and I need to kind of prepare for that. So, uh, it works pretty well for me for the first part of that window in that I'm a, I'm a teacher, um, for my day job. And so I have my summers off, which is, uh, why I'm able to, uh, talk to you guys, uh, kind of, well, I guess we're towards the end of the day. Are y'all but... already out? Of school? I'm already out. Yeah. My, my school district gets out uh, kind of early. I, I'm just, this is my actual first day of summer break. So, uh, oh, mine's I'm not till to... next
2: week, well, the kids are done. I'm in staff. I have staff week this week. And so we're done next week.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I've got a few meetings to do next week, but, uh, yeah, so it, it, it allows me to, I try to get as much done as I can before I have to go back to work in the fall. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the busiest time of the school year for a teacher as well, kind of August, September. So, um, those couple months are really insane for me. Um, but, um, you know, and it's handling emails and, and, and managing people and requests and, and, and things like that gets, uh, gets, get, gets pretty crazy. So I try to stay organized with the record keeping. I try to stay organized within my email folders and who wants what and, and all that kind of thing. And I, you got to write everything down. And in addition to that, you need to manage the animals and, keep track of what snakes are eating what and if this snake is eating a fish and this one wants lizard and that kind of thing it's uh, wow. it's uh it can be a lot of work
1: absolutely you so, need like stickers well speaking of like <laughs> I, have more. One.
0: I i use coded colored stickers for everything so I, <laughs> you know if a snake is uh feeding well it gets a certain color sticker if it's sold and reserved by somebody it gets another color sticker and all my tubs uh for all my hatchlings have gotten just covered with stickers <laughs>
1: Now, talking about selling the animals, I mean, you're dealing with, at least with the Eastern Indigos, um, something that you need a federal permit, from my understanding, to get out of your state. Right. So um, what kind of hoops do you have to jump through? Does the customer have to jump through? Do you need to help them along the process? And, like, just tell us all about that.
0: Yeah, so that that is a deterrent for some people. A lot of people don't want to deal with the permits. It, it's actually not that bad. Um, particularly if you're, uh, diligent in the way you put together your application. And, and I absolutely help, uh, customers with that kind of thing, but the way the legalities work is, um, anytime you want to move an Eastern Indigo snake, uh, in that's, that's uh, part of a transaction from one state to another, you need to obtain the federal interstate commerce permit. And, uh, that's available on the internet. And I, I, share a link with, uh, with potential buyers, but, uh, it costs a hundred dollars and it usually involves a two or three month processing time. Um, uh, oh, wow. you know, like with any kind of, um, I don't want to talk too bad about federal agencies, but you know, things can get gummed up, uh, in the works. So that's part of, part of, part of the process is just kind of staying on top of people of the office and making sure that things are getting processed correctly. But, um, But uh, that's in order to move it from one state to another state. Now, if you are moving from one state to another and it's not involving a transaction, you don't need the permit. Uh, But if you're trading for an animal or you're purchasing an animal, you need to get the permit. So, What happens
2: um, if you move and then you sell it in that state? Then I guess...
0: Yeah, I mean, it, if it's right? if it's that that <laughs> that's not tricky. technically an issue. I mean, there, there are obviously a lot of ways that people try to get around the permit. Yeah. I'm generally a real stickler for making sure that things are done properly. If I know that you're out of state, I make you get the permit. There are people that ask if they can drive to California and come pick yeah, it up during the process. I tell them no. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's just not worth it for me. You know, you may as well just just do it and do it right. Um, you know. Uh, as as far as the permit goes, it's not worth the risk. So um, with that being said, as far as ownership of the animal, that's up to the state. Um, the feds cannot regulate what you own or don't own. Um, that's up to state law. So most states you can own Eastern Indigo's without a problem. The states where it can get sticky is where they're uh, indigenous. So Georgia, for example, you can't own them unless you get a, a, a state permit. Um, which is generally only issued to educational uh, facilities. But uh, Florida has kind of changed their stance on it, which has been kind of interesting. Uh, and this only happened a couple of years ago, but um, they stopped issuing state permits to own Eastern Indigos. Um, and so what they do now is you can own them, um, but you have to prove that it was legally uh, acquired from a captive breeding facility. And the way that they do that is by obtaining is by you have to obtain your federal interstate commerce permit. And that shows that you bought it from an out-of-state breeder and that it's a captive bred animal. So a Florida resident can purchase an animal from me uh, without having to jump through any hoops on the state level. They just have to make sure that when they get that federal interstate commerce permit, that they keep it and have it ready to show and have handy that if they ever get inspected or if there's ever an issue, they can say, look, this here's Here's my documentation to prove this is a legally acquired animal. Um, but what so, if they buy
2: it in the state of Florida? Wouldn't they then not need the...
0: Now, I, uh, I am a little bit ignorant to how the state regs work as far as buying and selling within the state. Um, I would imagine that's restricted, but I don't know for sure. Um, I also don't know, I've not yet learned what happens if you breed eastern indigos in Florida. What do you do with the offspring? Um and how all of that works. So uh, I don't know. I don't know the answers to those questions uh, yet. Um, you know, uh, but obviously, Florida Florida's main ambition is to make sure that you're not taking them out of the wild, and that you can prove that whatever it is that you have was legally acquired. So, um, you know, my understanding is if you have an eastern indigo in your house, you have to be able to show that it was acquired through a federal interstate commerce permit.
1: And is there anything that you have to do to prove your legitimacy to the no, state of Florida? Actually, uh,
0: no, um, and, and, and actually, as far as permits go, there's really nothing that I have to do. It's, it's, the, so it's the buyer's responsibility to be able to uh, get the interstate commerce permit if they live outside of California. Uh, that being said, I help them through the process and, and give advice and, uh, on how to fill out the application to, to lead to as little red tape as possible. Uh, but as far as owning them in California and selling them, I don't have any responsibility uh, with the with the government on that.
1: Okay, that's fair enough. And um, this is obviously a lot of people's like dream animal is an in eastern indigo, and I've seen so many giant docile amazing indigos um like you were saying they obviously have a pretty good food response um is that something that you don't open the tub and put your hand in there immediately you just got to get them out and they're chill or are they that smart that they can visually tell the difference
0: well uh, a lot of people do talk about the you know the quote-unquote intelligence of an indigo snake uh you know it's obviously a difficult thing to quantify uh, and you don't really understand it until you own one and you work with it uh, every day. But part of what I see is their intelligence is that they've got this insane feeding response. but once you get them out and they're in your hands, they know that they're not being fed and they figure it out very quickly. Uh, you know other snakes, not as much you know you' I've had king snakes, I'm sure you have as well that if they feel something fleshy, they're gonna bite it um, mm-hmm. you know, without much thought, but, uh, but indigo snakes figure it out pretty quickly. That being said, it varies by individual. Um, there are some cages that I, that I know that I can't go into without care, uh, because they'll come flying out with their mouth open. Um, and there, and there are others where it's, it's not as big of an issue, but as a general procedural rule of thumb, I use a cage hook with all of my adults. Um, and you know, I'll go in with a long hook, I'll pull them out. And as soon as I get a coil in my hand, they know it's over. And they're a docile snake from that point, um, for the most part. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, I've got some animals that are pretty, pretty intense, particularly in the, in the summer when the temperatures are a little bit warmer and they're, they're pretty jacked up. And, um, I, you know, they're, they're snakes that absolutely lunge out with their mouth open. Um, I have a yellow tail Cribo and in fact, there's a, video somewhere on youtube of my my largest yellow tail over eight feet long he in the summertime he will launch out of his cage and i have to have an escape route you know because he lands on the floor with his full you know eight foot mass and will chase me across the room yeah. until i nope. can get a rat in his mouth so i have a i i have a i have long forceps that i have a rat you know dangling from and you know the. It's never been a problem. He's never actually got me. But you know, the, the the game is I gotta get a rat in his mouth before it gets a body part of mine in his mouth. Uh, but he's a but he's a gentle, docile snake. He just gets hungry, you know. And as soon as as soon as he knows he's not being fed, um, which doesn't like take very long, it's, a chase.
2: it's a snake chasing you you're out of the gentle docile I, I can't still put it in that box if it's gonna chase you like
0: no well i i, I understand but it's uh it, it's the kind of thing you just sort of have to see there there are there are there's a large sector of the uh of the snake uh, uh culture and hobby where people uh like intense snakes like that uh but again you know you can you can, once I use a cage hook and I pull the snake out, and he knows he's not being fed, uh, we're buddies. You know, he's uh, he's a pretty he's a pretty chill animal. But um, that's the other neat thing about you know we talked earlier about that indigo snakes and crevos are not constrictors. Uh, it's it, it's again it's a hard thing to sort of describe, but a lot of constrictors you know their thing is they'll they'll strike, they'll bite, and then they'll pull the animal in to its coils and wrap around the prey item these guys don't do that. Uh, what they, they, it's not just jaw strength and bite, but it's also just blunt force trauma. I mean, they, they'll take their head and they'll smash into the prey at him and they don't just grab it. They drive through it and they push it. And they'll h- actually hit it with their head and their mouth, uh, as part of a way to subdue their prey. And so, um, they don't bite like that. They plow through things. And so, um, they charge they don't just strike and walk away they charge their prey uh which is which is uh you know it keeps you on your toes in the in the summertime when it's a little hot out but uh but again uh, i don't want to i don't over dramatize the, the the intensity of, of the animals but you know uh more often than not they're they're super chill animals and they will hang out and, and they're cool yeah, um, I don't think but, you uh, are. You're, you're not. We just pulled
2: up the video you were Brandon talking about.
0: Yeah. You're
2: not yeah, overdrawn. Like my face is still like, <laughs> what the fuck? That thing yeah. leaped so far out of his cage.
0: Yeah, he's <laughs> a he, he's a good snake. That is a regular occurrence for me. If I don't have time or or, or I'm not in the mood to dance, I, I just open his open his cage that much and slide a little rat in there. Um, he's out. But uh, if I'm, you know. I'll show them off to friends now and again when I'm feeding and, you know, I'll open it up and, and, you know, it doesn't take much coaxing. He comes out and chases you. It's yeah. like
2: one of those, the things you'd used to spin as a kid and, and like pop out, you know what I'm talking about? The yeah, little box. The box. Like, <laughs> the box yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of like, yeah,
0: the, they pop out, you know, the, the, I don't, it's I take care to not get bitten because it is pretty intense, but they're, the the, the worst bite that I ever took was I was careless and I went into one of my higher up drawers uh, that had an indigo in it, and it was you know super gentle snake that I played with. I let my kids play with, but I was checking to see if uh, if he'd eaten, and I and I pulled open uh, the drawer and I and I peeked up and in like that, and all I saw was just white gums coming at me, oh. and it hit me right on the nose
2: oh. and it just
0: ripped. And uh, I my obviously reaction was to jerk back, Put and so I, right. had, I had just slash marks across my nose, and it was. Bleeding all over the place and whatever, but uh, you know, but it, it's the, the the feeding response, you know, is it's uh, it, it's something to watch out for for sure. It's a lot of fun, you know, um, but uh, but again, you know, I would use. <laughs> hey, well, I, I, I would venture to say a lot of hopefully a lot of your listeners would would disagree uh, in that uh, you know it's it, it keeps you on your toes and a lot of people sort of gravitate to that kind of attitude and, and intelligence but at the same time it's an intimidating snake but at the same time you hold them in their hand in your hands and you know they, they're they can be pretty gentle so uh, and that's it's what's wild what need about
2: it's wild how after it got you know the item you're all pick it up and put it back in its tub with no oh, yeah, pot, they, you don't, know? they
0: don't they don't care about me at all once they have food in their mouth it doesn't matter uh yeah it's you know and that's but that's the other thing too is that you know, other snakes you'll see, you know, they'll pop, they might pop out of their cage and grab a rat and pull it back in. It's gonna do do that. Even if they grab the rat, you know, two inches from the opening of its cage, they still push their whole body out. So it's a regular occurrence for me to have to pick up an eight foot snake that landed on the floor because it grabbed a rat and then just kept pushing forward even
2: though the rat they was they two inches from its face it's oh, yeah. still like no, no they, i'm gonna go full they just distance
0: plow, they plow right through it and they <laughs> they pop out of the cage and but you know once they have once they have a prey item in their mouth they are not concerned about me at all they just want it they just want to eat and gobble it down as fast as possible so they can get on to the next one
1: yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I play that game with my olive python, and I need to make sure that she's not – sometimes she'll be in the front, and then I have to bang on the back, and then she'll, like, get her attention over there, and then I just throw the rat in there. <laughs> I don't even fucking – and I close it, mm. like, get out of here. But but in the chat, they were talking about um, – you know, we've heard of certain things with heat intolerance with Krebos. Um, could you explain a little bit about that? How you can't get too hot or what temperatures you keep them at?
0: Well, so talking about just sort of basic maintenance, um, they're not horribly difficult snakes to keep as long as you kind of stick to a couple, a couple factors. First of which is water. Um, the the Jaramarcon genus is going to drink more than any snake you've kept. Um, at least I haven't come across anything comparable. So, um, Access daily to fresh water is really important. And um, if if you sort of neglect a cage and, you know, go out of town for whatever, if they go without water for a week or two, most snakes are fine with that. Um, but with indigo snakes, that can cause permanent organ damage. And, and, mm. it, and it, you know, you might come home from being out of town and, and find the snake a little thin. And even if it drinks and starts eating again, you know, they could roll over on you a month later. Uh, You know, it does damage their organs. So, um, you know, daily fresh water is really important. That's something that you cannot neglect. Um, Secondly is the temperature. Um, That they are not tolerant of warm temperatures, despite being on average sort of a tropical species. They don't like warm temperatures and it will stress them out. It'll dehydrate them faster than normal. Um, And it can be a problem. So generally speaking, you want to keep them, on the high side of room temperature, but not much warmer. And so, uh, uh, you know, heat lamps, heat bulbs, that kind of thing is really not necessary. It, it kind of depends on the ambient temperature in your room. Um, I find that they do really well if you just keep the ambient temperature seventy-eight degrees, eighty degrees, maybe, and no heat at all, and just just leave it like that. If your ambient temperature in your room is more in the low seventies, that's a, that's they're they're fine but digesting meals can be tricky so you do want to put kind of a hot spot way off in one corner under tank heater whatever you want to do uh but keep it way off to one corner and even then keep that put a thermostat on it and keep it in you know not any more than 83 degrees something like that because if it gets much more they will stress out so um, a lot of keepers just with the way they have the room set up should not own dry uh, because their rooms just get too warm. You know, if your room is gonna, in the summertime, is gonna be in the in the mid 80s, you know, or the upper 80s, that might be fine for a ball python, but it's not good for an indigo, it'll kill it. So if you keep the temperatures appropriate, and if you keep the fresh water in there, um, those are the two most major factors in keeping, uh, keeping a drum mark on snake happy.
1: And what are considerations as far as um, like bedding or hides or anything like that, is any of that are there any do's or don'ts, or what do you do?
0: So uh, there is a lot of, uh, of variability in what uh, Jermarkham breeders use for bedding. Um, one of the big factors is odor control. And so we we alluded to this a little earlier, but they poop often. And their poops are a lot different than other snakes. Uh, Ew, you know, uh, not to get too graphic for your listeners, but you're not talking about a log here. You're talking about a spray of liquidy, kind of like wet cement, kind of glue, glue. and it can uh, it can be kind <laughs> of gra- grainy, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And they don't just leave it and lay it. it. It does, in fact, spray. So actually, seeing it on the side of the cage is common. Uh, and it does not smell great, uh, particularly if you're feeding, if you're mixing in fish. Uh, I don't, uh, I, fish is an occasional supplement for my guys. I don't feed them a lot of that because that does make it even stinkier. So odor control is a factor that dry on keepers have to think about, uh, particularly if you're keeping them in the house, you know, where the odor is not as, uh, you know, well received by your spouse or whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, but what I use is, um, I use Aspen shavings that are ground very fine. So I don't have to worry about any kind of impaction. Um, and then I mix into that compressed wood pellets and, uh, and, uh, I buy them in bulk from feed stores and people use them, um, uh, in horse stables because it, it absorbs odor and it absorbs liquid very well. Um, so it's naturally dehumidifying, but what, what happens when any kind of liquid hits it is that, you know, it starts off as a pellet and then when liquid hits it, it sort of, uh, you know, uh, turns into sort of like more of a grainy powder and it, and it just absorbs all of it. So that's really great for absorbing the, uh, the, mo- uh, the moisture of the poop and the odor of the poop. So I mix that in with the Aspen shavings and that's helpful.
2: So does um, it turn into like kitty litter? Uh, you green? Uh, it it,
0: it's it's not so much that it clumps like a kitty litter would do. It's more that it expands and spreads out, and breaks okay. apart. Instead of a compressed pellet, it it, it breaks apart, um, and it it absorbs it as it goes. So that right there is naturally dehumidifying. Which uh, and these snakes you know need a certain amount of humidity as well. I also don't live in a very humid climate in Southern California anyway, so I provide humid hide boxes for the animals. So. All of them have a hide box that they can fit into that's filled with damp moss. And uh, they sit in there most often, particularly when they're going to shed. So that's the way I do things. Other keepers um, do things differently. Uh, the peoples will use co- uh, people will use cocoa mulch or something like that that will absorb uh, moisture pretty well. Um, I know of a guy that uses uh, pellets that are made for ferrets uh, you know, and that's made out of paper products. Um, which I actually uh, – I've had in my mind that I want to experiment with that as well. Um, but it's the same idea as the, as the wood pellets. It's just compressed paper, and so they'll keep them on that. That does a good job as well. Um, and some people are very fastidious, and they want a, a really clean uh, thing, and they don't want to worry about any kind of bacteria in the substrate or whatever. So some people will use newspaper. Um, I can't bring so myself can to do that in. because – Yeah, you can dump it, but you're literally cleaning every other day. And that's what I was
2: about to ask. How often are you having to completely, you know, take out all the bedding and refill it?
0: Well, again, you know, it depends on the bedding, right? If you're using newspaper, you're cleaning every other day because that's uh, the poops are very liquidy and it's it's messy, Um, you know. um, But when you're using, uh, you know, the pellets, that kind of thing, you know, you can spot clean, um, spot clean weekly and then do a deep clean once a month kind of a thing.
2: Oh, that's Um, not bad. Okay.
0: You know, so it's, it's, it's not terrible, um, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, the volume of poop depends on the volume of of feeding. So it's less in the winter time. Um, But, uh, you know, but it it is, it is an issue, but it's not insurmountable. Um, You just kind of have to play with what works best for you and what makes sense for you um, in, in, you know, in your steak room and controlling the odor is something you definitely have to keep in mind with Indigos for sure.
1: Do you know, um, are these a particular wood or a blend of wood? And then also do they have like an odor to them?
0: Uh, there's, there's not an odor to them. Um, the stuff I buy, um, and actually I believe the stuff I buy is pine, which people do say, you know, that you need to avoid. I've been using it for many years without an issue. Um, but again, Um, I mix it in with the Aspen bedding and it is actually a very small percentage of what's in there. You don't need a whole lot of pellets for it to actually do its job of, of odor control. Uh, but that's also why I've been fiddling around with the idea of, of trying out the paper products. Um, but, uh, but I believe it is, it is pine, but again, I've never had an issue. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not as uh, toxic as cedar or something like that, that you definitely don't want to use. Um, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And I mean, Eastern Indigos come from the long-leaf pine forest. So, wouldn't you think they're in pine like constantly?
0: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you, you would think, but you know, <laughs> if you're if you're keeping them in a cage where they're they are they are surrounded by it, it's a different different scenario. But ventilation
1: uh, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, but again, I, I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem using that. It's it's worked well for me. <laughs>
1: And do you think, I mean, since they seem to be easily um, started on fish, I mean, is that a thing that they may, you know, spend a lot of time in the water? Uh,
0: You know, I I have actually not spent really nearly as much time as I would like actually looking for Dromarcon in the wild. Um, You know, I'm familiar with their preferred habitat for the eastern indigos, uh, you know, in the southeast U.S., I will say that a lot of the stories that I hear about people finding blacktail crevos and things in Central America is that you do find them often hunting around the edges of water. Um, so uh, I, I would imagine that's that's kind of a thing. But I think that will you know depend a bit on species and depend a little bit on micro habitat. You know that they're you know the in, the eastern indigos in, in the southeast are using a lot of the tortoise burrows and you know they prefer sort of the sandy uh, you know long pine kind of thing. Um, but uh, I know in Central America, I have heard it's definitely a uh, definitely a thing if you want to look for the Cribos, it's to look around water.
1: Now, besides getting the Easterns cooler, um, are there any differences between all of them as far as, you know, like we mentioned before, heat tolerance and then keeping just in general?
0: You know, I keep them all the same. You know, there are some people that will tell you that uh, – that some of the South American, Central American crevos, you keep a little warmer and so forth, but I really keep them all the same. The, the only thing I do differently is I just cool the Easterns down uh, more in the winter time. But um, you know, the substrate, the caging, the temperature, the humidity, I keep them all the same. It's all pretty uniform, and it's been uh, pretty successful um, with them all. So I generally tell people, just you know, the one care sheet on my website will, will work for all the species.
1: Now. I mean, everyone loves dry marcom, but there's not, doesn't seem to be like an absorbent amount of people working with them. Uh, why do you think that that is, or at least breeding them successfully?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing, you know, they're, they're, they're not a beginner snake, as you mentioned, it kind of in the, at the beginning of the show, I think their size and their intensity is, is, is it's alluring to some people, but it's not, it's not for everybody. They're generally not the kind of snake that you're going to buy for your 10 year old kid. You know, uh, that's kind of more in the corn snake, king snake arena. Um, so it's, it's not for everybody, but that being said, uh, you know, I've sold several hundred over the last decade and, you know, you don't see a lot of people turning around and breeding them, you know, years later. Uh, and so I don't know that it's difficulty in how to care for them or if it's breeding them. I know it is not. Uh, As simple as you would think, particularly with eastern indigos, and actually successfully getting fertile uh, and healthy babies. So it's not the easiest thing to do, and I think that does kind of limit uh, the amount of people that are actually producing uh, healthy babies every year. So uh, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you can figure it out and you're doing it correctly, um, it can be productive for you, but it's not really something that you want to, you know, bank on being able to get you know, uh consistent clutches every year until you've had a lot of experience in kind of doing it. Absolutely. Do you have a question?
2: Yeah, but I'm trying to figure out how to say it and make it not sound stupid. There oh, no. you <laughs> go. <laughs> I don't I don't know how
1: to say phrase. the stupid. Question. Well,
2: I know when I first started when we first started dating and I would see pictures all the time, I would think something was an MBK. And it was an Eastern Indigo. I was wondering if he runs into that, like people reaching out to him thinking he has MBKs, but yeah, I just don't know if that's a thing. No,
0: that's it's not a stupid question. It it, it, people do come to me just sort of figuring that I work with all black snakes, so I do have people coming to look for Mexican black kings occasionally, um, even though they're not anywhere on my website or you know anything (laughs) like that. But but it happens. It happens. I, I do tend to gravitate towards the all black snakes. Uh, years ago i bred black milk snakes for a while i don't anymore but uh and then i work with muserana as well which is an all black snake so uh you know but yeah it it happens
1: yeah so i mean in the hobby a lot of people consider you know black pines or mbks the poor man's indigo yeah so which i
2: think is messed up but, but i think it should be a, <laughs> i mean uh uh-huh. <laughs>
0: A black uh, yeah, yeah, I funny. mean, the, the 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 phrase "poor man" sort of you know uh, suggests something about price, and there's certainly a a price difference that's between true. a Mexican black king and a in an indigo snake. But you know, uh, yeah, the, the Mexican black kings are, are are a lot of fun. Those are really neat snakes too. Um, you know, I, I, my, my opinion is obviously very biased, uh, but an indigo snake is a whole other level of animal.
2: Do you think that's why it's so much more expensive?
0: No, no. I, pe- people ask me that a lot, particularly when you vend the reptile shows. and Say, why is that snake a thousand dollars? You know, uh, and it, but it's like it's like anything else. You know, in business, um, you know, it's basic economics. You know, the price Buy of an food. animal is supply and demand. And if you have very few breeders and a lot of people that want it, you can get away with asking for more money. And it's uh, there are a lot of people that sort of think differently and think that you know, that the price tag on an animal should be a function of how colorful or how cool or how neat the animal is when it's really not. It's 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 a function of how many people want it versus how many people are offering it. Um, so, you know, and again, that kind of goes back to what you were saying, uh, Joe, about um, about not having a whole lot of other breeders out there. You know, that's part of the deal. You know, if everyone were breeding indigo snakes as easily and readily as they do corn snakes... You know, they they wouldn't be worth, uh, or they wouldn't be sold for as much as they are. So, uh, you know, and, and historically they they weren't. You know, they they used to be uh, a lot cheaper. So, you know, it's 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 just a function of the market, and it's a function of uh, supply and demand.
1: And now, I guess we should clear up what are the typical prices for for each one of the species.
0: Well, you know, I've I've pretty. Yeah. I I don't really play around with it too much. You know, Indigo, Eastern Indigo's I ask a thousand dollars per individual and there are different color phases. There's uh, there's what people call the black phase. And then the red throat phase, you know, and the demand for one versus the other, you know, might vary a little bit, uh, not by a ton, but I I generally just price everything the same with Eastern Indigo's. Um, You know, some of the other Indigo's uh, the, the Mexicans and the, and the Texans, you know, I just try to gauge it off of how many I produce every year. I'm really worried too much about other breeders and what other breeders are doing and what other breeders are asking for. I tend to sell out of my animals uh, very easily. Um, so I, I don't really worry if someone else is out there selling it for less. Uh, you know, it's gonna happen here and there, but, but by and large, um, you know, it's kind of a question of what I sold the year previous, how well did they sell? Uh, did they sell well for that price? Um, you know, and then how many am I producing this year? Did uh, did all of my females produce? Did only a couple of my females produce? You know, I might have a year where I only have ten to offer, and I might have a year where I have fifty to offer. Um, but that being said, I generally keep my prices pretty stable. They haven't changed a whole lot in the last twelve years. Um, and um, like I said, I, I've never really had too much of an issue selling stuff. So. You know, the eastern indigos, I'm more in the $1,000 range. The Mexican redtail indigos are still less common uh, with less supply out there uh, than the easterns. so I price them a little bit higher. The Texans are, um, the demand is still nice and high on those. In fact, I, you know, they go for nearly as much as the easterns, um, whereas they used to be cheaper, but, um, you know, again, low supply, high demand. And The Kribos tend to be a little bit less because they do have larger clutch sizes, um, so, there tends to be, you know, uh, you know, some supply out there and those tend to be more, you know, in the four or five hundred dollar area, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely important to know. I mean, just ask someone who bought a thousand dollar ball python 12 years ago or whatever, <laughs> if they're still the same. So, um, yeah, well, you know, the,
0: the, the market does. If you want to look at it from a business perspective, the market doesn't really fluctuate with Trimarkon. Um, as much as, as some of the morph markets do, whether you're talking about you know the ball pythons or or uh, you know hognose snakes or whatever else, you know you don't see that you don't see that that uh, fluctuation. Uh, you don't see prices you know uh, you know skyrocketing or dropping down to almost nothing you know within two years it doesn't really happen. So um, and, and part of it is that you know it's, there aren't really any morphs other so than the xanthic blacktail you know so. Uh, just you've got a wild type snake with a wild type look and it's basic supply and demand and um, so the market is generally pretty stable if anything demand has increased over the last few years because of just sort of awareness and you know the just internet and social media has kind of brought you know exposure uh, to them uh, which certainly uh, helps in that regard so yeah, it's, it's not the kind of thing where, you know, you worry about all of a sudden, you know, two years from now an in Eastern Indigo, is going to be $200. This is just not going to happen. Uh, but that being said, if you're what I advise people a lot is that if you're if this is an investment for you because you want to make money and you want to get a clutch of babies that you're going to sell. Uh, you know, like we mentioned earlier, your are not the easiest thing to breed. And it's, and, and unless your experience level is kind of on par with what's necessary, you don't want to look at it as a business investment. You know, what I tell people is look, look if you want to spend a thousand dollars on a really cool pet, you know, go for it, you know, spend the money. It. But if, if you're wanting to, you know, make money and spend a thousand dollars on something that's an investment for your future, or whatever else, you might want to look somewhere else. Um, you know, because it's it's not a slam dunk to be able to successfully breed any type of dry mark on snake. So um, you know, it's it's so, it's something to think about is what what are your motivations in spending that money? You just want really cool animals that maybe you can breed, you know, then great. But if it's if you're trying to build some kind of reptile breeding business or whatever else, you know, it's it's not a slam dunk, you know, and it's 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 not it's a lot of money you know, uh, to invest. So uh, I often, believe it or not, I, I often counsel people to not buy, uh, my snakes.
2: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. We are definitely not in that business. Um, kind of backtracking a little bit. Someone right. asked in the chat, if you sell internationally and if not, do you know anyone who sells? Or is it
1: even possible it to even- ship in Eastern Indigo or something like that internationally?
0: So I can ship any of my Jarmarkon without problem, except for Eastern Indigos. Uh, Eastern Indigos, uh, because they're listed as as threatened on the Endangered Species Act, I cannot export those. Um, so that's all just domestic sales. Uh, that being said, all the other Jarmarkon species, uh, the other major five, the Kribos and the Mexican Indigos and the Texas Indigos, I ship those worldwide. Yeah.
1: And what is your... Collection as far as size goes, how many adult animals do you have breeding pairs and how many clutches uh, do you hope to have? Or what are your percentages usually on a typical year of how many actually go?
0: Uh, well, you know, that's the other nice thing about having a a, a partner with his own facility is that, uh, you know, I, I've got half of Black Pearls uh, draw Mark on or at his house. So, but generally speaking, he and I both have roughly about 30 adults uh, draw Mark on each, um, uh, at any given time, then we have all of our holdbacks that, uh, you know, younger animals that we're raising up and then obviously hatchling season, you know, your, your numbers go through the roof. Um, so in any given year, it kind of depends on what our goals are, you know, um, and what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, like I said, the, the, the Kribos have larger clutch sizes, so it kind of depends on what percentage of our adults or crebos that are breeding that year or whatever but generally speaking we end up somewhere in the 150 to 200 uh you know baby dromarcon every year uh you know and there's variability sometimes females uh, don't produce or they or you know they produce infertile eggs that year that happens um now and again and uh you know and obviously you know uh, We've been in the game long enough that uh, there are retired breeders that, you know, move out and younger ones that come in and that kind of thing, which affects all the fertility. And Every summer we go through and kind of look at what our clutches are and what our adults look like and, and how, many, um, how many of each uh, species that jar draw mark on, you know, do we want to have? How many do we want to be producing every year? And so we'll sometimes, um, you know, thin the herd a little bit uh, with our adults uh, every year, just kind of reevaluate our breeding groups. Um, but, you know, we like to have a nice sized and consistently producing breeding group of all six of the major drum Archon, uh, going every year. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it can fluctuate some years or big years. Last year was crazy. There were just a, a lot of, a lot of baby snakes. but, um, uh, you know, so, it varies, but you know, you have to be prepared every 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 fall to just be swamped, in babies.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a significantly sized collection, especially for the size of snake. And uh I saw that um now switching over, <laughs> I saw that you did have a Pied Musarana lay. So is that a new project for you? or Are is new or are you always you know what? Them?
0: It's actually an old one, believe it or not. Um I uh I was into Musurana a long time ago, and I actually was uh, was part of importing some of the some of the first ones into the United States. Uh, There was a guy in Washington who was importing them from a breeder in Uruguay for a few years, and then uh, he didn't want to do it anymore, and I sort of took over. And so the piebald Musurana came from a breeder uh, in Uruguay, and. and uh, he's actually just now started sending animals to the U.S. again. But I used to I used to import them into the U.S., and I'd keep a few for myself and sell the rest off. Um, and uh, I got out of that after a while. Um, and the Muserana, you know, are even more work um, than the Dramarcon babies, and it got to be pretty overwhelming uh, for me. So I actually got out of the project altogether uh, several years ago, and um, I miss them. And uh, so I, I just got one pair back. And so I have a, a pair of piebald, just one pair of piebald lucerana um, that I breed now, which is a really neat snake and a really cool trait uh, that with the way it presents itself. So um, yeah, if I find just, you know, some of the kind of side projects that I do in addition to the germ arc, I I kind of come and go with some of them. And there are some that I just miss in this past year. I kind of, got nostalgic and wanted to kind of work with projects that I used to work with and got out of. And so that that was the Muserana and some of the Baron's racers. Now
1: those type of things, do you totally change up how you're keeping for them in particular, or do you keep them the same as the others?
0: No, I mean, that's, that's the other thing too. It's, 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 when I'm thinking about projects to take on, I have to be mindful of, of that, of what the ambient temperatures are in my room and, and what I can handle as far as care goes, um, so you know I'm I'm, I'm deliberately keeping things uh, projects that work well under Dr. mark on type husbandry and Musserana absolutely fall in that category, you know temperature, humidity, uh, you know all that kind of thing is very similar with the Musserana, so that it's been, it's an easy transition to be able to do those.
1: Yeah. All right. Are you familiar with the Terry Phillip method, the fact that um, he keeps everything at 80 degrees? Um, I do it for a lot of my snakes besides my Australian stuff, but um, do you believe that to be effective or do you think that that may just work for the snakes that you tend to keep? Um,
0: Well, I'm not familiar with that name. However, that method is something that we absolutely employ. Um, you know, keeping, keeping our snake rooms at 78, 80 degrees and not applying any heat, uh, is, is a good way to go. It also, you know, leads to less risk as far as a, a heating malfunction or thermostat malfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but, uh, but that being said, it works really well for what we have, because they don't need to get warmer. You know, I don't know what you would do with a ball python or something, uh, you know, I would assume you would need to add add you know supplemental heat in addition to the 80 degrees. Um but you know 78, 80 degrees is absolutely perfect for what we have. And having a room that's temperature controlled like that is is absolutely effective.
1: Right. Yeah I mean for me I just do it not to light on fire as well. So
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's always good. Fires fires and reptiles don't mix.
1: Yeah and you see it far, far, far too often. So that's yeah. definitely something that you gotta be cognizant of.
2: Um I have a question that's Different subjects. So do you have one?
1: Still? No.
2: And you may have talked about it before I got here, but I want to know, like, how kind of your partnership works? What, you know, like, is it if you make a sale, you get the money, he gets a sale, do you split everything? How does it, you know?
0: Well, we have a, we have a very good arrangement. Um, we're very good friends. We, we trust and understand each other perfectly. We don't have any disagreements on how things are kept or how things should go, uh, which is step one. Um, and we've, uh, we've been working together for, you know, uh, a decade now. And so it, it, it works very well, uh, on, on that regard, uh, as far as sort of the business side of it goes, um, it, it only works well because we have that understanding. So, uh, in actuality, I handle all of the sales and, uh, he doesn't have, handle any. And part of that's intentional, you know, um,
2: know <laughs> your you strengths. Use-
0: Well, uh, well, he's actually. It's interesting because he's actually a very talented uh, talker and and salesperson. Um, But um, he's also the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off his back. And so, before he and I met, he would just sort of give snakes away to friends, kind of thing. But you know, I I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't do bro prices. You know, Uh, it's 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 more scaled like a business. But that being said, he does half the care and keeps half the animals. I keep the other half. Um, and he, he takes care of his expenses at his house. I tear, take care of mine at my house. Um, if we're going to purchase new animals, we split it 50, 50. Uh, when, uh, when I sell animals, I collect all the money, I give him half. Um, and, uh, uh then, you know, it, and then sort of trade off for that. He handles all the veterinary work, anything that pops up, any kind of quarantining that needs to happen, it goes through him. Um, if there are, uh, there's, there's usually a certain percentage of the babies every year that don't respond to the, you know, the easiest of the, um, of the scenting and, and that sort of feeding techniques. And those are ones that I just send to his house and let him work on. So, uh, you know, he does some of the more intense and, uh, and specialized, uh, labor um, That's a good and, and I handle all the sales. So, uh, it's, it's an arrangement that works well for us. And, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, it's something that's uh, that's just built on the trust and relationship that we have with each other. So it, it works out well. We don't have anything in writing. Everything is just done and understanding that, uh, that uh, you know, he knows what I'm doing and I know what he's doing. And, and it's uh, it's just a mutual trust. We talk several times a week. Um, you know, he lives 50 minutes from my house. I was We're just each about to ask that. I feel Our like you would have to together. look close. It's, Yeah, it's we get together often, you know, not just socially, but, uh, you know, to exchange animals here and there and pick things up and drop things off. And, you know, our our kids play together, our wives hang out. It's, uh, it's, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good situation.
1: How long have you guys been working together? A decade. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say if you haven't said that before. Yeah. sometimes, sometimes I'm reading the chat and I and you're
2: not listening. Right. So basically, neither of you are allowed to move though for this to continue.
0: Well, things, 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 <laughs> things would have to, things would have to change a little bit. It would, you know, we'd make it work. But I'm not planning on moving. He's not planning on moving. And so for now, it's uh it's a, uh, you know, it's just a good situation, and it's uh, hopefully not going to change.
1: Well, you-, you missed in the beginning. <laughs> that um, his partner actually has a herd of Galapagos tortoises, so I don't think he's moving anywhere. <laughs> so.
0: No, it's a little difficult to move 400
2: <laughs> Um Do you ever worry about car rides with those picky babies?
0: Uh, no, not really. No, they just, uh, just put them in a deli cup and go, go meet up with them. Yeah,
1: because there's there's a certain amount of people who actually uh, it's a thing among green Tree people that they actually take their babies on car rides in order to jumble up whatever's going on and it will make them eat supposedly. So.
0: <laughs> now I've heard of that with human babies to get them to fall asleep, but I don't know about uh,
1: I I hadn't
0: heard that. I don't mean to be dismissive of it, but uh, I, I will say that sometimes with picky feeding babies, that sometimes a change of environment does help. You know, Mm -hmm. there there are times when I'll send a snake that I cannot get feeding over to his house and within two days, he's got it feeding and, (laughs) and, and, and vice versa. You know, sometimes he has trouble with something and he will take it to my house and it switches on for whatever reason. So, uh, I don't, we haven't figured out what to attribute that other than just a change of environment. So I don't know about the car ride, but, uh, you know, but the the house and the caging can make a difference. So does
2: he keep the exact same way that you keep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now I know you talked about experimenting with some different bedding. Is it an understanding like that? Oh, if you start going this way, like he would do it too, or
0: well, it's not so much an understanding like that. It's more just that we bounce ideas off off each other all the time. And so we're always chatting about, about that sort of thing. And it's interesting because particularly early on in our, in our relationship that, uh, you know, that he would sort of stumble across a, a husbandry technique, and I would sort of stumble across it at the same time and we, you know, cause we're always thinking and we're always learning and we're always chatting with each other. And, you know, uh, that's another really beneficial part to, uh, you know, our business relationship is that we're always analyzing, we're always thinking, we're always learning, we're always researching, and we're, and we're always sharing ideas with each other. And, uh, you know, if he figures out something that works really well, I'll try it. If it works for me, then we go with it and, If it doesn't work for me, then he does it and I don't, and that's fine. You know, just um, he's successful with what he keeps and I'm successful with what I keep. And um, more often than not, our husbandry aligns with that. Um, And just his stuff tends to be the same as mine. But uh, that's part of, you know, a lot of what we do is just sort of been just the two of us brainstorming and talking about what's working and what's not working. And if something gets messed up or we get a clutch of bad eggs or Or, you know, something's not feeding or, you know, if there's a health issue, whatever. And that we have that we have that conversation. We talk about, you know, um, to what do we attribute the successes and to what do we uh, attribute the the failures? And uh, and that helps us kind of refine what we do.
1: Now, you mentioned before that he has a zoo background. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of different thought between, you know, the way someone with a zoo background thinks than a hobbyist? And like, what are the things that he contributes or, and then also does he get ideas from hobbyists as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, we pull from everywhere, you know? Uh, a lot of what we learn, we, we, we take from the zoos, um, you know, and, and the zoos are really great at, at uh, you know, at, at keeping certain species and keeping things well. A lot of our techniques, some of our feeding techniques, some of the other things we do are things that he learned at the zoo. Um, but at the same time, there are also things that private keepers are doing that the zoos are not doing and the zoos can learn a few things, you know, as well. And so you pull from wherever you can get, you know, I, we're not picky. We try not to be arrogant and, you know, we pull, we pull whatever we can, we can learn from anywhere we can to help, uh, help take better care of our animals and help our animals be happier, healthier and, uh, and, and, and good breeders. So, uh, we're, we're not really, we're not really discriminatory along those lines.
1: Yeah, I think uh, on both sides, I think ego gets involved a lot of times and, you know, people get past, you know, what works and then would rather take something that their tribe believes in, whether it be like ball python (laughs) people or this (laughs) kind of people or morph people or naturalistic keepers and all that, when like maybe it just matters what works and especially for the animals for longevity and stuff like that.
0: Well, I think that's something you can apply to really any kind of walk of life. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, being a teacher, it's the same thing, you know, what works. And what doesn't work, and when you get stuck in your ways of doing things a certain way, you're not open to new ideas. And um, so, you know, you have to have a certain amount of confidence in whatever you do to be successful. But at the same time, you have to be open-minded and and listen to other people's ideas. And that it doesn't matter, you know, if that's if that's uh, professionally in your work or in your hobby or in politics or whatever it is that you want to do. You know, listening to what other people are doing. And evaluating if it's going to work for you uh, is important. And you can't let your, you can't let your ego get in the way. And, you know, like anything else, there are a lot of very humble and really good reptile keepers that that are open to learning from other people. And there are a lot that aren't are a lot of people that get let their ego get in the way. Uh, you know, we, we try not to be that we, we aspire to kind of uh, learn and listen and, and, and try things out and, and fiddle with things and to further refine what we're doing. So, um, you know,
2: it's so a big so issue go for in
0: teaching. It. Oh, yeah. Very
2: big
1: issue in teaching.
2: The the sure. fight of education versus experience is a really right. it's what's valued more.
1: Well, you're young. You don't know anything.
2: <laughs> that's what it, <laughs> a lot of well, teachers say. That you know. Well, people, like,
1: that happens in snakes too. Right, like well, yeah, that's you True. See.
0: There, there are people that have been that are experience does not always equate to success, and there's something to be said for youthful passion and 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 vigor and and being open-minded and generally speaking younger people tend to do that more than the more experienced people but you know you try to be you try to be a blend of both you gather as much experience as you can and certainly the longer you're doing anything uh, the more experienced you become but at the same time that's only going to take you so far eventually that's going to plateau whether it's teaching Mm -hmm. or or working with reptiles or whatever eventually you're going to plateau unless you are willing to listen to what other people are doing, take other people's ideas and and learn and grow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people a lot, you know, I've been around, I've been working with these things for a long time and I found a lot of things that work for me. What works for me may not work for you. And at the same time, I'm still learning. And there are things that I'm, I'm every year, there are things that my partner and I adopt and what we do um, that sometimes work and sometimes don't work. And, and, but we like to think that the overall trend is, is, um, is moving towards things that are more successful and, and staying hungry and staying motivated, and staying ambitious um, towards being more successful in what you're doing um, is, uh, is good. It doesn't matter if you're in the hobby for one year or 30 years, um, just always always looking for the, that next little edge to to help you and your animals be more successful.
2: Right. Speaking of being open, would you mm-hmm. be open to keeping other species in the future?
1: And if you are, how does the talk between you and your partner work in order to be, hey, yeah. should we get this? Should we get that? What's going on?
0: Well, it's it's pretty straight up. I mean, you know, generally speaking, he and I are sort of attracted to the same types of animals. Uh, there are some things that uh, that I'm into that he's not quite as into, and vice versa. Um, there are some projects that he has that I am not invested in that are not part of our 50/50. Those tortoises. <laughs> uh, well, so, some of the tortoises we do together, and some of them we don't, and that's just kind of part of it. But that's that's more of his thing than mine. But I'm financially invested in in uh, in, in a lot of in some of those projects, but not all of them. Um, but he and I just have kind of have an understanding with that. We're generally drawn to the same stuff. And if we want to kind of add a side project or something else, we'll, uh, we always talk about it and talk about if it's something that, um, that would work, that would work, uh, from a husbandry standpoint, it would work from a business standpoint. Um, and, uh, you know, and if, if we're not both into it, then we'll either not do it or one of us will do it, not the other. So it's, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't argue about it too much.
1: Yeah. And in, in general, you seem super focused on what you're into. I mean, pretty much exclusively a genus of snakes, but um, things like the Baron racers or uh, are those just, and obviously the Moose you only have one pair. Are the Barons the same thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, I, I've, I've learned to just sort of stick with the bread and butter, you know, there uh, we've had a lot of success with the drum mark on, we, I know what the market is. I know what to expect from it. I know what I can do. Uh, I know what I cannot do. Um, for example, I've always been fascinated with Boland's Pythons. I'm not going to spend the money on it, you know, <laughs> um, because it's, I, I'm confident that I could be successful with it. But the amount of work, time, space, research, studying, tinkering that I would have to do, uh, to a be a successful keeper and b hopefully potentially reproduce them someday is more than I want to take on right now. Um, but that being said, they're probably the type of the species of snake that I've been most fascinated with since my childhood, you know? But it just doesn't, it doesn't fit in what I do and it's not, and it's I don't have the time for it uh, or the space for it. So uh, maintaining my focus on the Grymarcon genus has been intentional um, because I know what it is. I know what I can expect of it and I know what I can do, and I know what I can produce. And so I know what the market is. I know what I can sell. I have my client base. Uh, if it's not broken, don't fix it. With that being said, I like to spice it up and kind of play around with some other things. And so some of the side projects come and go. Um, uh, but for the most part, uh, it's all centered around the drum on. So the barons Racers are things that I used to import from the same breeder in Uruguay many years ago. Uh, back then it was really primarily the the green ones. Um, but there were brown ones here and there and there were blue ones here and there, and they were always sort of fascinated me as a really neat snake to keep. And I missed them. You know, I I missed working with them. I thought they were really neat. And, uh, I came across someone selling a, an adult pair of blue ones. Uh, and back when I was working with them, there were only a couple blues in the whole U S and, um, and I found a pair of adult blue ones. So I, I I bought them and I'm just enthralled with them. I absolutely love them. Uh, and, you know, so it, it has to start there. It has to start with my passion. It has to start with um, what I like working with. Is it fun? Is it cool? And then the business part is sort of secondary. And if I can get both of those things to line up, um, then it's good. But, yeah, it's, it, it's intentional. I'm not using cage space to breed things that I'm going to sell for $50 each uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, um, but it's a decision that I made that I'm going to kind of stay along. Um, things that I'm really passionate about, uh, that I really love working with, but at the same time are somewhat financially lucrative. So um, and the Baron's racers are not the most uh, pricey, high-end snakes either, but uh, but they're a lot of fun to work with. They're easy to keep. Uh, they're 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 really neat animals, and I love the kind of polymorphic uh, thing going on with them as far as their color phases. So. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's a space that I plan on being in for a while, um, you know, but what's never going to change with the Dromarka.
1: Have you um, successfully bred that adult pair that you picked up?
0: Yeah, so I bred them last year. I got a pile of babies, um, and um, I ended up uh, kind of going a little nuts with it. It's just when I get onto a new project that I'm really enthusiastic about. I, I kind of go full force with it, so I accumulated a lot of other people's animals, too. I got some green ones. I got a, I got a, I got some brown ones. I brought in some animals from Europe. Um, and, um, so I've got a large breeding colony going now of blues. Um, I'm breeding some, uh, some green ones into my blue ones to see what happens there. Uh, I've, I've got an adult trio of Browns now that are hopefully going to breed this year. So, uh, this year I'm hopeful to have, uh, several clutches, uh, representing all the different color faces. So,
1: now I've seen barren racers all over the place and like you know I feel like no one's given them proper respect. I mean people may go for rhino rat snake or something that's right. pretty similar but um how many people are really captive breeding them and then are there uh, is there a lot of importation as well?
0: Um you know there's 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 some but but not that much. They're they're they are well, I, I've never had a problem breeding them. In my experience, they've been pretty prolific uh, and pretty easy to keep and pretty easy to breed. Other people have had uh, some difficulty, but, um, but you know, they're, they're around. But that's part of why I wanted to get back into them is I felt like particularly the blue color phase was pretty underappreciated. And I thought with kind of the proper exposure um, that it could really be a, a neat space to be in. Um, so, you know, I love working with them. They're really cool snakes, but at the same time, like you said, um, they're around, you know, and they're not super high dollar snakes, but they're, I don't know that they're really as fully appreciated as they could be for how neat they are and how colorful they are and the whole polymorphic nature of them. So, um, yeah, there's, I'm kind of excited to see what the next couple of years holds with what I produce and what I sell and what sort of the public reaction is to them.
2: Um, I know we talked a little bit about vending. You said like people would come up to you, but I'm interested, like, to did y'all talk about vending before I came no. on? Okay, um, do you vend a lot? Do most of your sales come from vending most online? what How do you decide what when to vend, where to vend? All that kind of stuff.
0: So, you know, this is uh it's th- this is a hobby for me. You know, like I said, I'm a teacher full time, so i I don't travel to vend. Um, the The bulk of our sales come online uh, and just done through my computer. Um, I I only vend California shows uh, to this point. Which
2: is pretty good. I mean, it's not like, you know, you know uh, random Idaho shows, California
0: shows. Right, right. There, there's some pretty big shows out here, which are a lot of fun. They're a spectacle to be sure. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I have not yet, you know, done any of the Florida shows or, you know, the Pennsylvania or, or Texas and, I've been intrigued by going to some of the shows in Germany and things like that. But, you know, I've never justified in my head the expense of traveling and hotels and bringing all my animals out there and and doing all that, nor do I really have the time. So the bulk of what I do is online. Um, I generally vend three shows a year. Two of that, two of those are the reptile super show in Pomona, California, which is really, I think, hands down the largest show on the West coast. Um, if not the country i haven't seen you know i haven't really been to some of the other ones uh so i can't speak too much but it's a it's a huge show it's very well run uh tons of people uh and then i usually do the one up in sacramento uh, but three shows three shows a year is plenty for me
1: right i mean sacramento must be a pretty big hike for you
0: uh, it's a four or five hour drive um, probably more like five hours depending on stops but uh it's about a five-hour drive and i just make a weekend out of it and stay at a buddy's house and um you know uh but it's that's a big show that's a lot of fun too
2: do you usually sell out
0: no i mean it's i i sell well um but you know selling out with the volume of animals that i have is uh is it doesn't really happen
2: well at the at the sacramento show early man like are you usually are you trying to only bring enough so that you're coming back with nothing,
0: you know, I, no, uh, I, I know, uh, I know I've, I've done enough of the shows to kind of reasonably know what to expect as far as volume of sales. Um, a lot, to be honest, a lot of my animals are, are reserved as soon as they're born. Mm. Um, so with that, there aren't really a ton of animals for just walk up sales anyway. Um, so I don't bring a ton, um, uh, to the shows anyhow. Uh, but that being said, um, you know, when you're selling thousand dollar animals, you don't really, you
2: your know, market's you smaller. you sure. have
0: 20 or 30 of them, you're not going to sell out, you know, right. uh, it would be nice, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't wholesale, I don't, you know, really do a whole lot of group deals or anything like that. Um, because I sell very well, um, just online. And so having that knowledge and that sort of confidence in the market and knowing what I can and cannot sell for what pricing, um, you know, uh you know, kind of, kind of helps know what I'm going to do with the shows, but, uh, I'm generally sold out by November, December, uh, you know, or January for the most part. And, you know, that's of all my babies that are born in July and August. So, um, it takes a few months, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting on baby snakes for a year or two. You know, if I'm selling a year old animal, it's going to be because it, it was a holdback back that I decided to part with, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, now, I wanted to ask before, <laughs> but uh, we got off the subject, but I want to kind of track back, which seems to be a, a theme that we're doing. That's but, our uh, normal life. Yeah, that's true. Talking in circles. But, but uh, I want to kind of go over um, the type of enclosure and the keeping of the Barons Racers.
0: So they're super hardy. And, I mean, you can keep them like you would keep a corn snake. You know, they don't have a lot in the way of humidity requirements. You know, keep them, you know standard temperatures that kind of a thing as far as caging goes you know uh again not a whole lot in the way of humidity requirements so just keep them on aspen shavings and they're fine i've kept them successfully in a rack system uh and they've done well they bred for me um they do get pretty big you know um i have my you know some of my larger females so are topping seven feet Oh. Um, and so, but when I got kind of this second round of keeping them, um, and I got into the blue ones, they're just so beautiful to look at. It's, it's, I, I do use, uh, now I have them in, um, arboreal cages, you know, with glass sliding fronts and that sort of thing. So I, so I can look at them all the time. They're just so neat and they're so active and alert and have such good eyesight and they, they follow you when you walk through a room. Um. You know they can be happy and healthy and breed well for you in a rack, but uh, but I like them in cages, you know, because they're such interactive snakes and such alert snakes, um, that uh, that uh, I do that. So, what I do, I kind of do something of a community setup for them. Um, I have uh, three foot by two foot by two foot cages and I stack them on top of each other and uh, I cut a hole with a PVC pipe. Um, between the top of the bottom one and the bottom of the top one, so they can pass up and down. I only have heat up at the top, heat up, heat and light up at the top, and nothing down on the bottom. That's just room temp, and uh, so it allows them to thermoregulate better. Um, I have seen them basking underneath the heat, you know, at 90 degrees, and they'll 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 keep themselves pretty warm. But again, I've had success with them in the past of just keeping them room temperature of a rack, so you know, in the in the low 80s. So. Um, uh, they're, you know, they're, it can get a little dicey during feeding time if you're doing a community kind of style setup because they can be very aggressive feeders as well. Um, but that being said, I, I separate them and feed them and and they're great, but they're, they're kind of social animals. They, they kind of like hanging out with each other, uh, you know, uh, which is kind of neat to watch too.
1: Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Like, do they like being solitary or... Are they always together? And is it always a, a male with a female that you have?
0: No, they 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 hang out. You know, during breeding season, the male is just relentless. It doesn't matter. Twenty four hours a day for like four months straight, he's just all over the girls. And uh, and you know, they they lie together, they cuddle together, they go in their hide boxes together. They they're not apprehensive about being around each other at all. Uh, males, females, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's, it's kind of neat to keep them in something of a community setup like that. It's something I obviously don't do with my indigos.
1: Just don't, uh, tell people on Facebook that you cohab or else you may get lynched somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, you're going to get lynched for saying just about anything these days, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, uh, I mean, like the, the, the downsides to what I'm doing is, is feeding, you know, if they fight over the same food item or that kind of thing, but it's, it's, it's all supervised and I generally separate them. Um, you know, during feeding time, um, I also kept a larger group together during breeding time, you know, um, you know, to get the males in with all the females kind of all together. And, and I, and I did separate that stuff out kind of once breeding time ended to give the females more of a stress-free environment where they're going to lay their eggs and, uh, uh, to kind of give them a break from the males, uh, they're relentless. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I separate a lot of that out. That makes feeding a lot easier if it, you know, if you're just throwing a, a, a mouse or a chicken with three hungry barons racers, you're going to have an issue. So I get where the part of what the cohab people are talking about. Yeah. I mean, that's
1: something that we've been flirting with as far as if you've got an enclosure big enough and a big display and keeping multiple animals in the same thing. I don't think that there's any downside to that, even though they are solitary for the most part in the wild. But uh, I think it's something to explore and then also, I mean, zoos have been doing it and have done it right. in the past. And people have been, you know, another Southern California person there. He used to, I think, keep all of his stuff cohab.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get into keeping different species in the, in the same Oh, wow, space. I meant the you know, there, there's <laughs> that, but, <laughs> uh You know, just to clarify that I, out of the gate, I'm not into that. But, uh, but I will say, you know... There are types of snakes and, you know, we want to transition to some of the tiger rat snakes we work with that, that are kind of social. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound too kooky. There are a lot of kind of weird conclusions that get drawn by reptile people about kind of just oddball theories and things. But, um, I, uh, there's something to it. You know, there, it, I, I keep my, uh, my Mexican tiger rat snakes in the same fashion as the barons racers. And there are absolutely times when they, need to get comfortable with each other and they, and they hang out together. And there are times when they need their space from each other too. And they'll go to opposite, uh, opposite ends kind of a thing. But um, there's something to that. And, and, and I have a good friend who's, uh, who's been pretty successful with breeding the, the tiger rats. And one of the things that he talks about is, is that don't expect to just pair your snakes during breeding season and have it happen. That it, it does, in his experience, it does seem to help that the male knows the female and that they're familiar with each other. And maybe some of that is just a, a stress thing for sort of a, you know, high strung snakes. Maybe that's a part of it that they, they need to be comfortable if they're going to breed kind of a thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, our, you know, uh, the, the snakes that I keep together with the, with the, those tiger rat snakes, um, I, I, I like it. I like keeping two of them together and, and, and I feel like they do, Interact in in kind of an odd way, and that there's a certain amount of comfort level having the two of them together. Um, You know, and part of the other strategy behind that is that this is hopefully our first year to be breeding them, and being at that, I'm still learning. Again, it's talking about the learning curve and the process. You know, I don't know for sure when I'm when's the best time to pair them up, and when the females ovulating, and when they're going to breed and not breed, and that kind of thing. So I just keep together all the time. You know. (laughs) And it was when they're going to do it, they're going to do it, and, and, and that was kind of the thing with the Barons racers. And I found that the Barons racers they bred all winter and into the spring. I mean, they were breeding, you know, from October, maybe even earlier, you know, September, October, all the way through, you know, uh, February, March. And you know, I, I wouldn't have known that if I was just keeping them separately and introducing them one day a week, you know, during what I perceived to be a breeding season. So that that's that was part partly intentional too it's just, just kind of as i'm learning the project and as i'm learning the species and what's the best way you know to handle their breeding behavior and husbandry is just we'll kind of let them do their thing for a while and figure it out
2: with the the tiger rats and the barren racers are you trying to breed or do you envision breeding for a specific look or phenotype thing since with the indigos you don't Obviously, you mm-hmm. get to do that because they're black as much. But yeah, are you like, oh, colors? Like, I want this yeah. specific
0: thing. Well, with the with the Baron's racers for sure, and and, and part of that is uh, again kind of the learning curve. You know, I don't know that anyone really knows for certain what makes a blue Baron's racer, and is it a polymorphic thing? And some people have theorized that it's a it's actually an exanthic trait um, that's making it blue. And when you take out the, the yellows out of the green that you're left with the blue. Um, so I'm kind of trying to figure that out myself. I'm breeding blue to blue and I'm breeding blue to green. Um, and you know, uh, my sample size is still pretty small. So I've only been really breeding them for, uh, the last year or two, but you know, I have found a few things. and And one of which is I bred last year, a blue snake to a blue snake. And some of the babies were visibly blue right out of the egg and others looked green. Uh, mm. But a little bit different than sort of the green hatchlings that I'm used to. Usually the green hatchlings have kind of a yellow uh, hue to their neck and, uh, and, and their belly. And I, didn't, I wasn't seeing that. So I, you know, despite people kind of coming and wanting to buy them and whatever else, I wasn't going to sell any of the greens. I said, look, I'm going to keep these for, you know, four months, six months until I kind of see what happens. And what I found is that the ones that hatched green Turned blue anyway. Okay. Which was odd because some of them started blue right out of the egg. So that's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to figure out. And uh, this year I'm breeding a blue to a green. We'll see what happens there. Many years ago, back when I used to import them, I bred a green one to a, a brown one. And I got some green babies and I got some brown babies. Uh, you know, so, um, but uh, this year my goal is to breed blue to blue, blue to green. And then I'm just keeping the browns in a whole separate category. The browns are all breeding together. And that the brown ones are actually something I think is pretty underappreciated and underrated. Generally speaking, people want color and flashiness, but the brown barons races are really neat. And they're super uncommon too. Probably, probably the least common out of all just those because, colors.
1: Uh whoever's collecting or even people who are breeding are just not paying attention.
0: Yeah, something like that. It's just they're they're not as readily available. You know, I had to I ended up getting a mail from 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 europe because i couldn't find any around the us
2: wow wow <laughs> um i literally know nothing about baron racers but just quickly looking it up what stands out to me other than the color like the stripe i really like uh, like solid thick black stripe and are you noticing right. is that something that's more in the blues more in the greens one like is there and any the babies right is there that? any sort of rhyme or reason to that stripe
0: um from what I've noticed that whatever they're born with, they generally keep, the color can change as they age. Uh, but as far as the black stripe goes, it seems to be whatever they're born with. That being said, I have also seen, if you look through enough pictures, you'll see that there are some that sort of have like a black webbing around the stripe, mm-hmm. particularly further down the body. I have seen that develop more with age, which is kind of cool. Um But as far as a rhyme or reason to, you know, what the stripe is going to look like as they're born, it seems like that's just sort of a variable, um, random thing with tendencies towards whatever the parents look like. Um, There are some, and I have some, that um, have very little stripe. It's hardly noticeable. Oh, wow. And others where it's very pronounced. And so, uh, you know, that's that's another element to how they can look in addition to just kind of the different uh, palette of colors
1: think someone's going to get a Baron's racer.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I'm like looking at one on Google. I, have 15, to tell you, they're, I really like that
0: one. <laughs> they're really cool. And the blue ones are really neat too. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, this is not a sales pitch. They are, they're, they're very easy to keep. They're very alert. They're very intelligent. They're really same as Indigo's. They have a sledgehammer of a feeding response, but yet they're generally pretty docile. Uh, they generally don't bite a whole lot out of defense. um, and, uh, and, and despite being, you know, active and wiry and flighty at times when you hold them, they calm quickly and tend to be pretty handleable. You know, uh, they are rear fanged. So I am cautious in, in working with them. I, I know people that have been bitten and just report nothing more than localized swelling, but really, I, I don't, you know, when you're talking about rear fang stuff, you always want to be careful because you don't know how your body's going to react to it. Uh, the Musarana are rear fanged as well. Um, but that being said, you know, I, I, they, uh, they're not really, uh, they're not really a defensive snake. You know, they're, they're, they're really neat.
2: Are they, do they burrow because of that? Nose uh, thing. Yeah. I just think uh, of like. Really. How- they're,
0: they're, yeah. it's, it's more along the arboreal, uh, sense of like a, of like a leaf nose snake or a twig snake or something like that, that they'll, uh, or a rhino rat. They're, they're not really a fossorial kind of thing. That's going to dig. Um, they're going to be more climbing and trying to blend with blend in with branches. Um, that being said, they're as their slender body type and nose would suggest they're they're probably not as um, exclusively arboreal as people might think. they they're they've been described to me by uh, people that have seen them in the wild as kind of being semi arboreal. Um, but um, but uh, they're, they're they're neat snakes. I like them a lot.
1: And I know we. Um some of our snakes like corn snakes too they start out more arboreal and then as they get larger they yeah. stay more uh, terrestrial do you find you would have the same thing going on with these guys
0: uh, not that i've noticed i mean i offer an arboreal setup and they use it you know uh, they, they sit on the ground but they also sit up in the branches quite a bit and it doesn't matter if they're adults or babies although i will say i generally don't really offer an arboreal setting for the babies because i'm keeping them in racks Uh, you know, and I move them up to caging when they're when they're uh, close to adult size, but Um, so I don't know if I can really speak too educatedly on that
1: All
2: right, um, alex millership in the chat asked what is the worst snake bite you've ever
1: gotten Well, that one on the nose is pretty bad.
2: Yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I i I have yet to really take a bad bite from any of my rear fanged animals Um, you know, I, I tend to be pretty overly cautious with that, but I think the one on the nose was, uh, was the worst.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That'll yeah. do it. I mean, I just freak out. Like it's a surprise sometimes when the olive comes out and his head's just like, he's just looking for something.
0: Oh, yeah, it's shocking. Yeah.
1: And you don't, you just don't see it coming sometimes. Well, really I'm just stupid. I guess That's <laughs> you
2: should see it coming. You've had yeah. it for long enough. The front but... of the tub's
1: clear. I should know there's a snake there, but whatever, you know, I'm yeah. not that smart.
2: Um, okay, we are over time, but I have one last question. Totally random, sure, but total. Uh, I can't think of the word. How much is your wife involved in this whole? That's process? always your question. That's right. always my question because yeah. I'm a
0: girl yeah. and I think these. Things. Listen, it's a, it's a reasonable question. You know, I, it's it's kind of funny because I share kind of stories with her as I interact with people and buyers and so forth. You would be surprised. Well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised uh, at how many. Uh, guys come to me saying um, I need to hide this from my wife or <laughs> I need to uh, you know I you know I can spend this much without her noticing or you know something along those lines and it happens all the time uh, all the time so um, anyway but that's just a funny comment on the side but uh, that being said she's not really involved at all in the care um, she uh, you know she she likes them. She tolerates them. She appreciates them for their beauty and what they are, but, uh, um, is not necessarily a reptile person. So, um, it's sort of, um, you know, keep whatever you want in the reptile room, uh, you know, and don't bring the smell or the, uh, animals, uh, you know, uh, into the house and, and you can do whatever you want. So, um, she's, she's very understanding. She's very, uh, uh you know, tolerant of what I do and my hobby and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, you know, and as far as the hiding money and all that sort of stuff, she, she, she knows that I'm pretty responsible with the way I spend and, and sell. So, um, so it works out. It works out. And you
1: mentioned before that your kids handle some of your snakes. Uh, do your yeah. kids enjoy it and do they get into it as well?
0: Uh, they do. They do. And they like going out looking for snakes with me. And we, you know, we're out camping and playing around with snakes all the time. Um, you know, they're, uh, they, they they know uh, the bulk of what I have are not necessarily animals for kids, you know? I, I don't, even my more docile ones, I don't let them play with any of my rear fang stuff just to, you know, why I just err on the side of caution kind of a thing, and, uh, you know, but they'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll check out the big indigos and crevos when I have them around and uh, some of the smaller animals that are more handleable. I keep a couple snakes around just kind of for them to play with some rosy boas and things that we find and that kind of thing they like playing with so they like them it's all good they prefer the tortoises though
1: yeah that makes sense but i mean there's just so many things there's a few things that we didn't even hit like i feel like we could do a whole thing on spilodies and then the field sure. herping and all that stuff well like, we'll definitely
2: have to have them we'll back have on then again.
0: round two <laughs> yeah not a problem
1: is there anything that you'd want to get out there before we end the show? And also where can people get in touch with you? Uh,
0: well, you know, the, the best way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is uh, blackpearlreptiles.com. And there's a care sheet there. There are uh, pictures of uh, of the adults and uh, all the kind of animals that we work with. So that's the best way to kind of educate yourself on what we do and all of that. Um, You know, and uh, as far as, you know, anything else to know, you know, um, it's like anything else, you know, uh, the snakes that I work with are not necessarily for beginners, um, but they can be kept, uh, you know, uh, responsibly. And if you do your research and the people that I really enjoy working with, uh, I don't mind working with beginners and I don't mind selling to beginners, but I I really enjoy working with the people that are doing their due diligence. And a lot of reptile breeders, you know, talk about, you know, you know, serious inquiries only and don't waste my time kind of a thing. And certainly my time is valuable as well. Um, but I, I like people that ask questions. I like people that do their research. You know, um, you know this day and age is kind of interesting and in that people kind of expect and look for answers more quickly in this kind of digital age. Uh, but there's so much out there online. Spend time on, the, on my website. Spend time looking around. Um, uh, you know, in, in doing your research on whatever kind of animal you end up with, and if you're going to buy something kind of more obscure or higher end, which is kind of what I aim to offer, um, you know, it, it behooves you to do your interest because not only is it better for the animal, but it's better for you, uh, you know, so that, those are kind of the, a lot of the people I, I enjoy working with, there are people that, 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 uh, that really want to know what they're getting into.
1: Absolutely. It's something that I can imagine would be super important in that. And it's also super important that, like, people that sell snakes all the time, um, at least rare stuff, and like they get mad when people ask questions. But if you have like all the resources online, you can just say, Hey, go look at my website. Or, like, for me, we get it all the time. Like, Hey, dude, I have like a bunch of videos on that. Just check out videos on. Yeah. And I will say that
0: that is sort of the frustrating part. You know, I don't mind answering questions, and I try to be as helpful as I can. But you know, there, there's, I think that there's, there's a whole kind of subsection of people that I generally don't find as valuable to work with. That are people that are going to ask questions before doing research. You know, and uh, and to a certain degree, I don't mind that as much. But I mean, it's it, it, it's all right there when you're getting questions that are you know a couple keystrokes away on your computer. You know that that can be frustrating. I'm not going to lie on that one. You know, most uh, that's why I try to keep most of the information that 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 people would need. Ninety percent of the questions are going to be answered on the website or 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 on the internet. Um, You know, so uh, but yeah, so that that can be a frustrating part. You know, I I generally you know uh, look for people. You know, research first, answer as many of your questions as you can from as many different sources as you can. You know, and then ask questions.
1: Gotcha.
2: Anything else?
0: No, that's it.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on. We've already established we need you on again.
0: All right. <laughs> um, be happy to. It's been a lot of fun, guys.
2: Yeah, it's been great. Um, and then to anyone who's listening, I said this in the chat, but I wanted to say it on here just to have it on the downloads or whatever. That this weekend we're gonna be doubling up podcasts on Sunday. We will
1: Oh, was that, that weird? Was that was more like a creepy... Like, yeah, that was a creepy sto-
2: Casper. Like a haunted Ooh, house. Like, yeah. yeah.
1: Sorry. Ooh, Sorry, everyone. Let's go. Ah, that's really Rewind. Kind of, okay, okay, let's go. Oh, yeah. Or crowd applause. <laughs> Gosh,
2: that was bad. Um, Sorry. So this Sunday, we will have Philip Starkey on from, was it Star Python? Star Python. Star
1: Pythons. And then- He is from Germany, I believe. So international. Yes, two that's in why one it's on month. Sunday.
2: And then Monday is going to be Owen mcintyre um and so i know a lot of people are looking forward to us talking now and and so yes get ready for two podcasts in one week
1: I two carpet python podcasts in one week i guess it's not too far off with what we do usually <laughs> we but. do a lot
2: of carpet but yeah okay again thank you john for coming on
1: You got to do our stuff.
2: Oh, sorry. If you want to reach us, obviously, if you're listening to this download or watching it live right now, you've already found us on YouTube. But Port City Pythons on YouTube, Port City Pythons on Instagram, PortCityPythons.com. If you want to email us, it's ThePortCityPythons at gmail.com.